Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. I'm your host Dave Homewood. Today I'm at Black Sands, which is a fly-in at Raglan. It's an annual fly-in, and I'm talking with Bruce Cook. Hi, Bruce. Hi, how's it going there? Good, good. Now, Bruce is the secretary of the Thames Valley and Waikato uh, chapter of Sport Aircraft Association. That's right. Of New yes. Zealand. And, SAA New Zealand. That's right. And uh, also the operations organizer of Black Sands, uh, and one of the founding members of the team who organizes this. That's right. Yep. Tell us, um, how did Black Sands first come about? Well, Black Sands, um, we started off at a, with a um, fairly informal chapter barbecue we had here back in November 2004, which um, happened to be the, about the same time that they had the big search for the missing helicopter, the Ursig crash that was up on the hills just above there. But um, When you say here, this is at Raglan. Yeah, this is at Raglan here. Um, and yeah, that was a time they had a search and rescue operation running out of the airfield here while we came. It was actually, it was just started off as a, a local chapter fly-in and we had invited the guys from the Auckland chapter and the, um, and the Bay of Plenty chapter across. And um, we came in um, and we, we just booked a barbecue here at the campground here. The, uh, and yeah, we were sort of talking there and telling talk stories like we do. And um, some of the older guys on the chapter were sort of saying how they used to have these great fly-ins in the past and sort of these weekends here at Raglan. And I right. thought, well, well, why don't we? What's stopping us getting it going again? And as it turned out, um, we were speaking to uh, Mary Clark, who's one of the owners of the campground here, the Raglan Kopua Holiday Park. Yep. Got to put a plug in for them. Yeah, definitely. Um, and he was talking to Mary and she said that, hey, we've just actually got this new facility that we've built on the extension area of the campground. And it's uh, the Papahua complex. It was brand new in 2004. So when we packed up our barbecue there, we went and sort of had a little look around the, the facility. And we thought, hey, this has got an awful lot of potential here because it's got this ki decent kitchen and a huge dining area. And then all these bunk rooms at the back. And I thought, right. well, hey, this could actually be a really good venue for for a weekend fly-in yeah, yeah. and um, so we did a, did a bit of thinking on it and I mean like I say, 2004 was just a lunchtime barbecue we had about 12 aircraft arrive from the other chapters and so it was pretty small and we had no idea what would, we thought well we'll have another one of these sort of combined chapter do's I think yep. um, and we saw we're looking at time frames and we thought well actually this sort of no early november is really good weather wise it's um the westerlies are finished generally the that we get the gales through spring and november the weather's settling down get some nice weekends and it's before the campground gets too busy over the summer so let's go and have a pencil on a date for um early november so uh, we booked in then early november 2005 we booked in the date um with the campground and um, yeah, we put a lot of effort into organising it and um, in many respects the first ones were actually a bit over-organised. We sort of had a lot of extra stuff that um, we had things like goodie bags and control, mobile control towers and all sorts of stuff that we had to sort out and corporate sponsorship and stuff and we got underwritten by the uh, SAA National Executive so that if it didn't work out we'd... Um, 
we wouldn't lose any money. In fact, they gave us a bit of a grant right. there for that, so, uh, which was really good. It, that sort of covered the cost the first year round. Um, but the amazing thing was is that the turnout for that first year was far bigger than what we had expected when you're starting to get into the, the 60 or so aeroplanes at the time, right. which we thought, hey, this is kind of crazy. We were getting guys from all over the New Zealand. We had guys come up from Ashburton. Um, the, the the winner of the furthest travelled aircraft at that time was Ian and Armand Royds from Ashburton, who well-known amongst the uh, Ashburton Aviation Museum circles down there. Um, Ian has unfortunately passed away since then, but... Um, yeah, it was a great weekend, and weather wasn't great, but it, all that great. But we had a really good time. Everyone thought, "Oh, yeah, this is cool," yeah. and sort of from there we've sort of carried on. And we thought, yeah, every year we thought, "Yeah, let's give it another go," and it's now become a, a, a real fixture on the aviation calendar. Um, and yeah, in 2014 it was our. Tenth Black Sands flying. You don't necessarily say it's a tenth anniversary because that's actually this year, but it was the tenth flying that we had. Yep. Um, and yeah, it's just grown from there. Over the time, we've um, we've done it so many times now that we've worked out how to do it the most efficient way. And some things which um, were a lot of work to organise, but didn't sort of gain a lot of traction, we've actually just dropped. Right. Um, and yeah, it's sort of just grown from there. I think, um, yeah, that, that's the main thing. Yeah, it's people come in and they talk and they tell big, tall stories and they have a decent feed. It's a social thing, isn't it? Oh, very it's, much it's so. It's more, more social than anything else. It's, oh, it's that's brilliant. the whole idea of it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not an air display. It's not a, a show. It's nothing like that. Yeah. It's essentially a whole pile of blokes who like flying, blokes and blokeesses, and they come in there and they, they'll come and they talk and tell tall stories and tip the speak aeroplane for the weekend. Right. And then we have these extra little bonuses on here like the beach flying and stuff like that, um, which have sort of really been just like the icing on the cake really. But if people don't go to the beach, I mean, it doesn't really worry them. They just come and they, they it's a nice day out. I mean, it's such a spectacular place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we... Today, it's Friday uh, that I'm speaking to you today. Um, we arrived here just sort of just after midday. Um, the weather is stunning. I love Raglan. I mean, growing up, I always used to come here and I always love coming back here. But a day like today, Raglan is at its best. And it's just absolutely stunning. Blue skies, warm, um, a bit of a breeze. You need a bit of a breeze. And, and um, it's, you know, just watching the, all the aircraft arrive today, and today's not even the big day, is it? Yeah. So, and we've already got about, what, 20? There's about 21 out there yeah, at the moment. So it's um, and then, you know, we've just had a, a nice feed, and um, then you and I have just walked down the flight line and, and had a look at the um, with the, uh, the sun setting behind the um, Mount Karaoe and looking across the very calm sea out there, out, out to the... Tasman Sea, it's just a beautiful spot. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. I spot. don't think that there's anywhere in the country really that can offer the same combination of uh, a great airfield, a town with all sorts of cool stuff happening, which is just across, yeah, just across, just across a walking bridge from the campground. I mean, yeah. it's so yeah. sunny. You, you walk, yeah. you, you basically have to f have to fly along the main street when you when you land here. Mm. It's 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 very cool. Um, yeah. You don't, have, you don't even have to get in a car, and, you just walk across got, the bridge. Yeah, we've got all the facilities within walking distance, including yeah. stuff for families and things. I mean, we've got kids here and all sorts of stuff. Uh, we've got nice beach right beside the airfield. Yeah. You've yeah. got the most amazing flying around, a huge grass airfield. Um, and it's just 
just and, and this awesome facility that we're in yep, here in the, camp, in the campground, yep. uh, and the, the campground owners are just so um, supportive of the of the exercise. Um, we've been working with them now for the for the ten years, and and we've just they they know what we need, and we know the expectations there. Just just we we, we have it all sorted out there. It works really well. Yeah. This is the second time that I've been. The last time I came was 2008. It's always clashed with other things I've been doing, but I'm glad that I've come back again this year and and seen familiar faces from seven years ago. It's obvious that uh, it's the um, it, it's so good that the same people come back each time, but there's more people on top of that. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. It's a good place to make new friends. I mean, I've met guys here who are now real hard and fast friends because it's yeah. it's just that sort of tight community. Yeah. Um, and they've all got different backgrounds in aviation and, and in everything else as well. But yeah. there's so many different aviation stories yeah. out there. And you sit out there and, and people tell tall stories. It's, it's a great way of spending a weekend. Yeah. Um, some of them are true. Yeah, some of them are even <laughs> true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. It, it, it's, the social side has always been the key thing. That's, um, I say, the key thing is it's a, it's a barbecue gathering of a whole load of. General aviation aviators come in there, and the fact that we have all these aeroplanes here that the public can have a look at—that's um, sort of secondary to it. I mean, yeah. We don't advertise to the public because as soon as we do so, it's um, basically the rules change. It becomes an air display, and all of a sudden we have a whole heap of red tape around it that um, that we don't really want to go into. Yeah. This way works really well. We have we do have processes in place to protect the public and. Uh, but the airfield remains open as a, as a public uh, facility. It is actually a reserve here. Yep. Um, people walk their dogs and things, but they come along, they look at the aeroplanes, we tell them about it, they realise, hey, this is something that real people can do, that they, they can get involved with and they get inspired. And um, We see them down the track um, getting involved in different ways. It, it's something that we can really, that the community loves. Um, it's, the community like to see the airfield full of aeroplanes and doing stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, we have these things that yeah, we're, what we're doing is is something that's that's really beneficial. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's why for we, everybody. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's why this year um, we're actually pushing uh, a number, uh, a large percentage of our proceeds are actually going back into the community. Um, we're because the community has supported us over these years, we've, we're um, providing um, funding for a, pr a project for the F St John Ambulance in Raglan and also for the Raglan Volunteer Fire Service. Um, they've got things, uh, the fire service want a set of portable lights. We've gone and bought them a set of, uh, we're basically funding the portable lights, so that's right. something that the community can benefit from there. Fantastic. And the ambulance guys wanted another resuscitator unit, and we've um, provided that for them as well. So uh, we'll be um, presenting there um, some checks to them uh, on Sunday, which will be uh, really good. And Excellent. they're coming along and supporting us. I mean, we we fortunately haven't had to use the the services of the fire or ambulance guys. Um, we've had one incident back in 2011, just a fairly minor one. Um, we haven't had to use their services during a, a fly-in. Right. Um, there have been other incidents here um, outside of fly-in times that they've supported us. And, and so it's just really nice that we can actually feel that we can that we're, we're part of the community here, even though none of us are actually based here at Raglan. Right. It's uh, yeah. it, it's just something that they've looked after us so well that we want to put something back there. Yeah, yeah. I actually want to say too, um, you know. It, 
when you're listening to this, it's after the fact. After the fact, you know, um, I've got to go home and edit this, and so you know, you, you won't be able to get to this Black Sands, but you can think about next year's Black Sands because it is an annual event. Yeah. Uh, and and I just want to say, in the meantime, my God, if you want to have a really good holiday at the beach, come to Raglan and come to the Raglan Kopu uh, Holiday Park because it is. It's just fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's just one, it's really one of those classic New Zealand camping grounds. Yeah. Which is just, yeah, they're disappearing now, at, but this one is really going strong. And it's, it's, it's got awesome. everything. It's got a beach right there. It's got the town across the water. It's got a fish and chip shop on the on the camping ground. Come on! Oh, it's great. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it, you can't get much better as far yeah. as location goes. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's just that's that's why Ma- Raglan is magic. Yeah, and then yeah, I think we haven't sort of mentioned yet is our beach flying. Thing, yeah, which, of course. That's um, one of the big drawcards. That's really something a bit different that we do, um, and that was one of the things that we said right back in 2015 or 2005 when we started this. Uh, it was something a bit different. Is that um, just to the north of the Raglan Harbour mouth here, about eight miles up the coast, is a beach called Gibson's Beach, which a lot of the microlite guys are aware of, and they go up there quite often. It's an enormous open sand beach black sand so which is where the name of the flying comes from yeah. it's iron sand uh, it's very dense so it's actually a very solid beach um, and if you, and we thought well hey let's do a, a, a workshop to sort of take pilots into, into something new let them learn new skills let them have a look at this so um, we've run these workshops on the beach flying so it's covers uh, we have a briefing beforehand where we cover the various factors that we have to be aware of landing on the beach um, the various um, microclimate conditions that exist on a beach and the surface stuff uh, how to assess the surface and things yep. and then we'll um, then they all head off up to the beach and because this beach is there's no direct road access to it so it's actually you're not putting any general public at risk the things seven or eight hundred meters long it's wide when you get a good low tide um, you've got an enormous area of sand there that it can land on um, and nice rocks and things that people can sit on and watch what's going on even mussels and things growing up there which some of them are pretty fat because they say it's not a public beach right. Right. they they sit there quite quite happily growing fat and so often guys will come and bring back a pile of mussels from up there um, and yeah it's it's a, it's a really interesting sort of outing because the, the beach is smooth it's safe uh, and it's a really good one for, for guys to learn and build confidence on um, what, what's the actual process for landing on a beach tell me um, what you would do if you were planning to you hadn't done it before okay um, key thing is things like you'd never go up there alone you always have at least another aircraft there because if something happens there's no one there to, to, to help you out so if you've got another aircraft accompanying you that's probably the first thing um, as you arrive on the beach you'd do a number you'd circuit it and you'd just do some assessments on it uh, what we do on our workshops is that our um, lead instructor um, who's uh, Noel Bailey this year will go up and he'll do the initial uh, investigation first and check it out um, normally as part of that process I'll come and I'll do a, a dummy landing run the wheels along the sand just um, have a f- see what it feels like and as you come back around you have a look at the wheel marks and you have a look and see so if, if there's any of them where they've sort of gone in, in deeper and things yeah, and, you, and you'd be looking to see if they're filled with water yeah well. that's the sort of thing because yeah. the idea is to land um, just up above the water line um, yeah. between the high and low tide mark you don't want to go into the soft stuff above it but on that area that that's exposed on these beaches and um, it's 
it's really quite firm. On, that's one of the advantages of iron sand. Because it's quite a dense sand, it, sits, it self settles quite solidly. Right. Um, so you can land 25 aircraft on the same piece of Oh yeah, and no it problem. barely leaves marks. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll park them there and we'll park them on the beach there. Um, I think the record attendance is about 27 aircraft, right. which we had a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, it's, it's all done at own risk. And it's actually all legal because the 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 area between the on on the beaches is actually public domain, uh, under under the unless it's specifically um, prohibited, you can actually land anywhere that's suitable. So um, so long as there's no one sunbathing. So long as it, I mean, obviously common sense applies. Yeah. You don't land on top of the sunbathing and things. That's why we go up to Gibson's. Yeah, it's exactly. Uh, yeah. It's all clear up there. So. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's a good thing to, to learn. It takes people a little outside their comfort zone, but without sort of imposing a lot of extra risk. Um, the beach is actually smoother than the regular airfield a lot of the time. Uh, it, it, it's 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 amazing up there. Uh, I haven't actually taken my aeroplane up there yet. I might do that this weekend. That's the plan. Um, you'll see it. We'll see, just see what the conditions are going. Yeah. Often I'm too busy running the operations because it's sort of. Um, to get to the briefing and things, but so I, I haven't really done it in the last few years. But um, well, it's high time. Yeah, we'll have to get up there, I think. But um, yeah, the beach is awesome. Um, it's a very wild and rugged, rugged sort of west coast beach. Um, but yeah, it's it's still quite safe. And yeah, put the airplanes there. Everyone goes and has a wander around on the rocks, grabs some mussels or whatever, and and takes lots of photos. And um, comes back here later on in the day, and it's. Um, it's a good exercise to learn for the airmanship point of view and to, yeah. to do that. It is controlled. We have a have set processes around getting aircraft onto the beach in sequence and things because it's not an, uh, an airfield. You don't necessarily have all the data for it. So you have we have set processes where the guys will come in and say, no, we'll do the initial inspection and land on there. And then everyone basically aims for his wheel tracks right. and right. will sort of try and get onto the same spot. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a really remarkable thing to do, and it's um, one of the, the few places in New Zealand where we can sort of do this as a big group. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I've got another question, um, technical side. Raglan itself, now you've got sea at one end, and you've got a mountain kind of at the other end, Yeah. Um, and you've got sea down the side. Um, so tell me, what kind of an airfield is it to fly in and out of? Okay, it's not the easiest airfield around, uh, one has to say. Um, the, the runway surface itself, it's grass, it's on sand, uh, and it undulates um, quite noticeably in places. It's not necessarily the most level airfield. Um, it has some really interesting environmental issues around it. Um, so you mentioned the proximity of water. Yeah. Um, and the, the dominant wind here is normally the sea breeze. Um, and as the, as the temperatures change, that sea breeze can fill in even if it go, if the wind is initially in another direction, and it can change really quickly. Yeah, um, as we found today, actually. Yeah, it, it it moves around a bit. It is a microclimate here in Raglan, so it, it is a bit different. And the weather forecasts for anywhere else in the country, even in Hamilton, the, the weather forecasts don't necessarily apply over here. So it is is a bit different. Uh, but the airfield is is big. It's uh, over 600 metres long. Um, it's a good dry grass surface and uh, the guys have really mown it nicely today, it looks awesome. Yeah it does. But um, a couple of things there is that 
it's um, over the western end when you're coming in on the runway two three arrival um, as you come in you come in over the the lagoon and you'll find um, that the that you get a lot of sink there um, so it can you sometimes have to work quite hard on on, on short finals into here yep. uh, and you have to fly in over the town and the town and that can actually be a little bit disconcerting um, wouldn't that be the eastern end Sorry, yeah, the eastern end, rather, yeah. <laughs> East-west, it's all the same. Not quite, but yeah. Says uh, the navigator. Yeah. Uh, coming in on the eastern end, of, over 2-3, yeah, you yeah. come in over the town. Um, western end, you, yeah, you're coming in, uh, if, if there's an easterly wind coming in onto uh, 05, you sort of scoot in over the ridge at the end, and it's... It's not bad landing there, um, but you don't get an easterly very often here, so it's, it, it's not, not really a big one. Um, when you're coming off 2-3, um, you sort of veer rightish a bit and sort of follow the, the, the beach around till you get near the heads, and then um, you'll actually get a little bit of an updraft as you come off that ridge at the end there, which helps you get up to circuit height quite nicely uh, out by the heads. Um, you have to look out for things like the paragliders and the um, kite surfers and things. There's a lot of that around, so you you keep your eyes open as you come in here. You do the standard overhead rejoins, um, follow the set procedures. When you're actually on on your your landing, um, there's a, a bit of an optical illusion because the airfield is actually not rectangular, and yet if you're expecting it, right. it's actually tapers, and so you can. Depending on which end you're coming from, it can make it appear, make it appear as if you're either too high or too low. Yep. Um, that's why we get the airfield mown before the black sand's flying, and that's why we put out the threshold markers so that it has a, a defined runway of, a, of, of sort of a more conventional shape and size, right. so it gets rid of the, the optical illusion. That's if you land at Black Sands, and at any other time you have to be a bit more careful. Yeah, other times they mow the whole place all together, so. Um, yeah, it's something to be aware of for the rest of the year, is to, to be aware of that tapered look, yep. as I, and, and the sink and, and the turbulence around it. But um, it, it's not too bad. Um, you can sometimes find that, yeah, you can actually, it's better to roll a little bit longer for your touchdown point, because um, especially at the eastern end, there are a few sort of undulations and things. If you can sort of float a little bit past there and get it on the ground and stop, then that's actually a better idea if you've got the performance to allow that. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, generally it's it's a good airfield. Um, it's looked after well, and the uh, once again the, the Waikato District Council who own it actually. Um, being uh, very, very supportive of our fly-ins. They've given us deals on the landing fees and stuff like that. Right. So it's um, something, yeah, we want to encourage people to use it even outside of Black Sands. It's, um, it does have landing fees normally. Um, that, uh, as I say, we've got special arrangements for the, the fly-in and it's covered in our registration deal. So, um, yeah, it's a good airfield. Just there's sometimes you'll find people walking across the airfield because it's it's an unusual airfield in terms of let's say it's so close to the town um, but it's also a um, a, re a reserve so yeah. it's considered to be a public amenity that the public actually will walk across it they there's dog exercise area down the side of it stuff like that so we put out signs and everything before the weekend to warn people of it but it's sometimes you do have to to really be aware of the pedestrians that appear out of the sand dunes and jog across the airfield without looking and things like that so 
Um, yeah, we can't really cha change that. That's part of the, the, the district bylaws that, that, op that we comply with. Um, and hey, it's the community's airfield as well. It's their, yeah. their facilities, so we're not going to impose that on them. So you don't want to upset them. Because, no, it's yeah. fine. I mean, it's it's a great airfield, and I mean, it's it, um, the history of it was that it was actually built in the Second World War as a military base. It would have originally had two runways, um, one of which has been handed back to the local iwi. Um, in the 1970s, there was a, a massive um, land protests and things. It's sort of yeah. gone down in New Zealand history is quite a, a, a major part of New Zealand's cultural history on that. Um, and so, yeah, the, the land was um, confiscated for, under the Public Works Act, and so um, it has a, it's in a, in a position where um, the council will be holding on to it because it's their asset. Uh, if it's, it can't be put into housing or anything, um, because if it ceases to operate as an airfield, then it has to go back uh, to, to the, the original area. owners. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's up to them to develop further from there. Um, so the council don't make any money out of it for development, for housing or anything like that. So it actually protects the airfield in, in, a, in a good way that we, that it's a community asset. Yeah. Uh, and the council are really keen to make the most of it. So, right. um, yeah, it's, when, it's when, a good venue. When you say it was um, built as a military base, it was never actually used. It was a reserve. I don't believe it was. It was, it was sort reserve, of like a reserve yeah. Yeah. thing. Well, an emergency landing field. Emergency landing field. Yeah. I think they were... Uh, if the war had developed further, it might have been used as a as a fighter base of some sort. It's yeah, sort it of was, more fighter base yeah. size. It was it was really to protect the west coast because there weren't yeah. that many west coast yeah. bases. So yeah, because you know, yeah, there, there's had there been a landing. It, it, the, these these lovely black sand beaches that we land on have been sort of prime invasion mm. sites if if the worst had come to the worst and. Yeah. That's why even on the road between here and, and Hamilton there, there have been tank traps and various other things done. There are very strong home guard units in this area and, and yep. coast watchers and the likes to really keep an eye on the place. So it was well, you, you go the beach right next to the airfield, you go down there and there's still a concrete pillbox. Yeah, there's pillboxes Sink, sinking and in, sitting there. Sinking and into the sand, but you can still yeah, go that, Yeah. That's that's an interesting point actually, because yeah, that is actually currently the, the the thing that's probably the most threatening to Raglan Airfield is actually the coastal erosion. Yeah, we've lost a large chunk of the the margin between the airfield and the sea. Uh, even in the last ten years that we've been here, we, uh, probably the most obvious one of that would be the the phoenix palm that used to stay at the end of the runway now originally there's apparently a row of those phoenix palms and right. i mean in the time i've been here there was only ever one and that disappeared about five years ago uh, it's d d gone into the sea and um, even now we, there's a bit of sand encroachment onto the airfield in one spot um, and that's something which i'm not sure what the policy the um, regional council is on that as to how they protect against erosion, a lot of it nowadays is left very natural, so whether or not we'll see the airfield sort of continue for much longer, I don't know, I mean it's it's one of those sort of things, I'm, I'm, yeah. it, it may, the airfield may change in shape, it may change in its character in, in the years to come, we'll, so, we'll see what happens really. So. It, may, it may become a helipad. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a wee while before that happens, yeah. but I, it, it, it's um, yeah. So the the runways may change a bit and may go, and and sort of as the airfield evolves, we'll sort of see what what happens as far as black sands go. But uh, it's something we can't really predict. But um, and it's one of those sort of things that yeah, it's it's changing. It's a natural process. So 
but so it's, got, wrong it? it's got to be a long time before you have to start to think about that though I think because even though it has definitely changed in the 10 years it's um, it's a slower route yeah it's it's slower and, and yeah it, it does it at varying rates and it depends mm. what the storms are and yeah. things like that so can't really sort of tell and what the winds and things do so yeah. um, and so that's probably the, the only thing that's really threatening the future of the airfield is what happens as the, the erosion gets through there so um, yeah very yeah an interesting sort of airfield really it's yeah. It's one of New Zealand's yeah quirky little airfields. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, and it's an iconic town. It's a town known all around the world because of the surf break. Yeah. And the, what was that film that they made back in uh, the Endless Summer. Yeah, Endless Summer. I mean, anyone out there around the world, just look up Endless Summer, the, the yeah, famous Yeah, everyone film. will know about that. Yeah. And, and it's got a real cool surf culture. I mean, even if you're not a surfer, the... And music culture, too. Yeah, the vibe there. The, the Harbourview Hotel has got such a very cool stuff happening. Yeah. It's... Um, such a relaxing place. It, it, it's 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 a quintessential New Zealand holiday town, yeah. and it's um, one of the few places that has not been ruined in terms of the quintessential holiday town. Absolutely, yeah. it's still got your traditional campground. It's still got your fish and chip shops. Your, your, your kid, kids can paddle at the beach. Yeah. And, your old and style pub in the centre of town that's still the same as it always was. Yeah, you know, it hasn't gone all yuppie. Yeah, like it, it, it's good. So yeah. yeah, so if you're a yuppie and, and latte drinker, although there are good coffee shops around town, <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you if if you're a yuppie or anything or a property developer, don't come to Raglan. Actually, I, I think first we may be showing our age by saying yuppie because that was an 80s thing. Oh, it was probably, yeah. But I mean, yeah, if, if you're, if you're what, a property developer... What do they call those ones with the top notches now? Ah, uh, I don't those know. Those stupid little beards, <laughs> you know. I don't know. <laughs> hey, I've got a stupid little beard. Never mind. Um, <laughs> You've got a stupid little grey beard, so you get away okay, with it. That's fine. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it's one of these sort of places, yeah. It, it's, it, you just come over here, and even though we're busy doing the organising and running the place... Uh, just the whole environment, just you sort of chill out as you yeah. come in and you drive along the harbour side there and you look out over the airfield and you see see the place and you think, yeah, this is cool, this is yeah. a cruisy place. And then and one by one those aircraft all arrive. And yeah. yeah, and yeah, by Saturday lunchtime when we have the, I mean, have 80 or 90 aeroplanes sitting on the airfield, uh, sort of lined up down both sides of the runway and it looks awesome and yeah. it's just buzzing and every, there's plenty of people around telling stories and it's just just a real positive sort of vibe to the place. Well we've got two more days of this um, Saturday and Sunday to come uh, as I'm talking to you and um, from now through the weekend I'm hoping to sit down with a few of the other pilots and, and interesting people here and get some more interviews and then Probably maybe at the end of it, I might come back to you just for um, your thoughts on how it all went. Oh, certainly, yeah. To, 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 to end yeah. up the show. And so you'll, you'll have some of the most amazing, interesting people to tell stories here. So, so yeah, I hope you get some good interviews there. And, yeah, yeah. we'll um, catch up at the end and we'll let you know what, what the impressions of the weekend were. Yeah, great. Thank you very much, Bruce. Okay, no worries at all. sitting here in the lovely Raglan sun with Alistair McLaughlin. Hi Alistair. How are you? Good, good. Can you tell me uh, a bit about your background with uh, sport aviation? Well I've always been interested in aviation. I started in early days in Timaru where I was born and lived my early life. I knew Harry Wigley. Oh wow. 
and uh, Brian, of course, a little fella, he was at school and um, growing up and flies aeroplanes himself now, right. part-time. Um, and model aircraft, I guess, to start with. Um, but always with an interest in um, the larger machines as well. Right. The um, uh, flying, I started gliding actually, uh, my later years at school, but it had to be paid for by pocket money, which I had to earn. Yep. And uh, some of the early gliding we did from Saltwater Creek, which was an early field in Timaru on the south side. Okay, yep. And then, um, and then they developed Levels Airport. But uh, with gliders, we operated out of paddocks around and Geraldine and Blue Cliffs and different other places. So when did when was this that you started gliding? Uh, let's see, it would uh, be early fit, uh, late, uh, no, mid fifties, okay. mid to late fifties. Right. And because um, I joined the Air Force in '59. Okay. So it was just prior to all of that. Yep. I did continue gliding, but by then I, I started power flying at Tyree. Yep. My first flight, well, I joined the Air Force at Tyree. Um, and of course, on your recruit course, you were restricted to the airport. Yep. So um, uh, I started power flying with the Aero Club because the gliding club. <clears throat> were a bit slow getting off the mark in the morning. They never got going until about two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, right. So um, Hugh Skilling was the CFI down there in those right. days. Right. That's uh, Keith's father. Keith's father, yep. yeah. And uh, he was also an active reserve pilot, as I found out later in my Air Force days, but I did not know that at the time. Right. And um, so that was in um, the Osters down there. And uh, that, that was really good. So did a bit of flying there and then um, even while I was at Tyree we did a, I did a cross country with um, the other instructor there, Bruce Crosby, I subsequently finished up with the Erebus situation. Uh, Bruce was a good pilot and um, yeah we went to Alexandra one weekend. So that was my first cross country. But I still did some gliding then, and continued gliding, and mixed in um, with power flying. Uh, progressed through the, the South Canterbury Aero Club occasionally. I did a bit with um, Desma Cambridge, who was a CFI, and Jack Mellop, who was also an instructor with the Aero Club in those days. Yep. But he also, he instructed gliders, Jack, mainly in those days, early days. Um, Desma Cambridge was an ex-wartime pilot. So, um, retired to Timaru there. Right. And then, of course, when I joined the Air Force, I travelled around to many bases and flew with many clubs, Blenheim, Haumaka, Middle Districts. Um, even at, um, at Ardmore, we used to do gliding there in those days. There's no power flying there. Power flying was at Mangri. Right, yep. And you had to be very keen to power fly in those days in Auckland because if you didn't have to car it was a bus. When I was at Hobsonville you had to take the morning bus into the city, get another one, uh, get out to the Massey Road which was um, then a shingle road from there to the Auckland airport as it is today. Yep, yep. And um, you started walking and <coughs> somebody would pick you up. <laughs> so for an hour's flying it was pretty dedicated. Definitely. Um, 
Yeah. And uh, we had, um, so the second time I went out there, I think I did my first powered solo. I didn't solo at Tyree because um, my student medical got sent to the wrong place. So a couple of McLaughlin's in the Air Force and somehow or other they sent it to the wrong air base. Oh, right, okay. Yes. <laughs> but uh, anyway, at Tyree it was a Piper Cubs. Yep. And, um, uh, yeah, so and it was a nice little grassy field in those days. So, yeah. And and, and at this time, while you were training to be a pilot um, through the civil um, yeah. route, you were also in the air force. What what was your position in the air force? I I wanted to know how aircraft worked. So I became an aircraft engineer in the air force. Yep. Airframe man, as we were called in those days. Yep. And uh, during my Air Force career, I worked on quite a few aircraft. Um, well, pretty everything they had except for um, I worked on one Sunderland, and that was the one that landed on Wellington Airport. Oh, right. And I was at Hobsonville then, and we helped beach it. So. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, before it sunk. So you were there when it actually came in. Yes. Yeah. I put these fingers into the hole. Yep. Three three to four fingers and I could just poke them in so it wasn't a big hole of water in the bottom of the hole but as your water sure came in very very fast. Yeah, yeah. I bet that must have been quite a lot of excitement going on and rushing and rushing around to try and save the aircraft. It was actually because the tide was going out and the first uh, that pilot came up to the mooring and he, he was going too fast <coughs> and uh, they, the signaler couldn't hook onto the mooring. So I overshoot, uh, overshot and had to turn around and they did that with uh, drag chutes in the water to turn quickly. Right. Um, but it wasn't a very quick, quick turn. But So we had to moor it so we could get the landing gear floated out and mounted on it. And for several of us it was our first time we were on our basic engineering training course at Hobsonville then. Yep. And it was a long weekend so there weren't many people around. Oh, right. So um, we... Uh, Managed to float the uh, main legs out and push them under the water against the current. Yep. And uh, the um, uh, yeah, there was quite a current there to push them down and lock them into position. But you had to get those wheels onto the Sunderland and then swing it around and pull it up tail first onto the um, bravy there, otherwise you'd um, shoot have sunk into the mud. Mm. Right, okay. Well, so that was an interesting day. Yeah, mm. And uh, what else um, did you work on there? And uh, then, uh, then you went on to different bases. Um, uh, Hakia would burn at different places at, at um, Woodburn. Um, was mainly the training establishment, but I did spend time there in the um, airframe major overhaul later on in my Air Force career. In fact, when I retired from the Air Force, uh, I was working on major overhaul work there. Replaced the centre sections for the vampires, for example. Oh, right. Mm. Okay. But prior to that, I'd been um, at Ahakia and, uh, and Singapore. Um, and uh, at Ahakia, um, I was a bit lucky. <coughs> on um, 40, 42 squadron there, they, we had DC-3s, um, Devons and Harvards, 
So you'd be allocated your own aircraft and then you shared maybe another plane and yep. uh, that's how they, they did it. And, um, and we, everyone got a share when it was polishing um, VIP aircraft, so <laughs> there was no special privileges in that, which was good. Yep. But um, I, because I was pretty current with my flying and I did a lot of aerobatics at that stage in the Tiger Moths, um, we, uh, I was a bit lucky, I, I got up in the um, Air Force aircraft and I catched a ride one day in the Harvard and the instructor said, uh, we did some aerobatics and a few things and he did some circuits and then he said, oh, do you want to have a go? Yep. So I did and, and I looped it and all turned and whatever and he said, oh, you he tweaked then that I'd done a bit of flying. Right, right. So from then, that time onwards, whenever they were going up, him or another senior instructor, um, in whatever aircraft, Harvard, DC-3 or Devon, uh, they'd let me know. And um, so I got quite a bit of flying. And um, uh, yes, I was quite lucky actually that um, in, in some of the thing flying that I did. So does Harvard was a beautiful machine to fly and land. Yeah. DC three, can't three point a DC three. Okay. Um, yeah, the tail goes so far down it won't go down any further. Um, but and you've got a tail wheel lock, so you must re remember to disconnect that when you want to turn at the end of your take uh, landing run. Right. Right. Yep. Um, Otherwise, uh, because I was servicing all those aircraft, I understood them pretty well technically. So, yeah. and uh, so that was a good part of it. Um, and of course, you got your Air Force training on the different courses, and um, and then I got posted up to Singapore. <coughs> right, right. And uh, it was at Changi at 41 Squadron <coughs> with the Bristol freighters. With the Bristol freighters, yeah. And that was good, and I took a lot of film actually, movie film, and uh, both on the flight during the aircraft flying and different places we went to, and 35mm, but I could not take still pictures and movie pictures at the same time, because your brain worked differently. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, we tripped around that part of the world quite a bit, and then one day we... Um, called back to the squadron and said oh as from now you're on active service and we're relocating to uh, Karat in Thailand and um, we um, then positioned up to um, Thailand. Okay well tell and, me about that I mean well that was very interesting actually because so we set up a, a campment up there with the American Marines. Uh, Karat was a, um, a Thai Air Force base about 10,000 feet of sealed runway. Yep was servicing facilities on the other side. Needless to say, I, I wandered in there and um, they were very pleased to talk with me, the ties. Yep. And, uh, so I found that very interesting. Right. But, um, uh, and also when on our day, days off up in Thailand, we'd um, um, sometimes go off on the old freighter and go odd places that um, probably any <laughs> New Zealand government didn't even know about. But, um, <laughs> Uh, so we did a bit of sightseeing and uh, and some of the exercises we did up in that area with the SAS were there with us at the same time. Yep, yep. Um, air service. Yes, yeah. special air service uh, guys and they're pretty fit guys, very fit. Yep. Um, but we flew mainly Americans and food supplies around for them. 
Okay. And our freighters could fill in a gap that they had the mil American military had in their Air Force military aircraft. They, um, we could take mini tankers on our freighter, which were too heavy, too big and heavy for the caraboos that the United States military had there. Yep. And um, and we could operate into the soft fields that the say a C-130 could not. Right. Um, and I think they had a few Fairchilds floating around, but they didn't seem to come in much. Okay. Um, so, but I took a few pictures that which these days you'd get shot for. But um, I got the uh, CIA hopping out of their area, helio air couriers and their grey suits. Why you'd wear a grey suit in the middle of nowhere, I have no idea. But, um, not very well disguised. <laughs> but I was intrigued with the aircraft, of course, because they didn't seek any helio couriers in New Zealand in those days. Yeah. So tell me about Karat itself. Was it sort of a jungle strip or...? No, it was out in the countryside, of, uh, not far from the township of Karat. Yeah. And it was a Thai training base. They had Harvards there, the Thai Air Force, for training. And they had Cessna jet trainers, the twin little engine, twin engine Cessnas. Right. Um, they get the odd visit from a, a, an F-86 Sabre. Which they had several of those around. They'd come in there and again. But they didn't seem to be based there, so it was mainly the Cessnas and the um, Harvards. Well, they used to warm the Harvards up in the morning just outside our tent line and um, <laughs> made sure you were nice awake. We, we ate in the, with the uh, Americans and um, they were very, very nice. We got on well with them, uh, but uh, a lot of them had not been very far. I don't think they. Sometimes we knew more about the United States than some of them did. So that was quite an education. I did meet several who had their own aeroplanes. And um, they had communal toilets, which were like ten holder jobs, all lined up side by side. And they were quite social activities. Um, and you had to watch it. If you sat there too long, your legs went to sleep. <coughs> so, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, some interesting uh, episodes up there, really. But the Thais are nice people. I got to like the Thai people yep. very much. So yeah, and um, yeah, no, we, we we had a great time up there, really. But we went to a lot of odd places up to the Cambodian border. We'd uh, chase our Bristol freighter one day when it got blown away one one evening. Really? Yeah, yeah. As a big storm came through, we just tied it up. And um, it next a uh, couple of hundred yards away, the storm struck and the wind blew, and and the, these Americans were having a sitting down and having a coke with several of them in a little shed. Yep. And uh, suddenly he said, "Oh, look at your airplane!" And it turned around and it was trundling off. <laughs> well, there was a line of big trucks, GM trucks, the Americans had there, and uh, about hundred yards or less than that away, and. Oh, we had visit. Well, I had visions of it getting bust. And, um, I could run fast, but never run faster than that day. And long side, <laughs> opened the door, raced up into the cockpit, and of course it was pitch black. We had the covers on then to keep the rain out, right? Because it was bucketing with rain at the same time. Yep. Leapt into the seat and um, stood on the brakes because I knew there was air pressure there, and it was 
stopped. And nothing had been broken, nothing was damaged or anything, but we were blooming lucky. That must have been a hell of a wind to move. It was, it was a hell of a wind to move, bits of sheets of iron and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were lucky there wasn't some foreign object damage from stuff blowing around. But then of course we couldn't leave the plane there. Um, so we had to move it and taxi around in the dark with using the adder's lamp in front of the wheels so you could see where the wheels were going. They weren't going into a hole in the mud or something. We had it parked on grass then. Right, right. Yeah. Because we didn't really have any picketing facilities for the freighter. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So did you just have the one aircraft there? Well, that day we did. Yep. No, we had, um, what do we have, two? I think we generally had two up there at a time. Right. And it was sort of a detachment from Singapore? It was from Singapore. We kept the main base. Yeah. The, the um, married personnel had the one of the longest laundry runs, I'm sure. They, they used to send their laundry all the way back to Singapore to be done right there. <laughs> their maiden. Okay. Wow. Yes. <laughs> but we used the local Thai people. And, yeah. Did the, did the air crew um, sort of get posted in and out from Singapore? Yes. Uh, fairly regularly and everyone got rotated. So, so the ground crew did as well. Yes, yeah, we got we'd get rotated. Okay. I'm trying to think, maybe six weeks or so, I can't remember now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But the um uh, <coughs> Yeah, the uh, it, it was an interesting experience I think by all and of course I've read since later, you know, other people went up there and their experiences but right at the beginning it was quite basic. Yeah. And those of us who'd done scouting had an understanding of how to lay out a campsite. Right. Mm, so we had a bit of a help there. Yep. Used to go into the market and buy timber to put, to, to make timber floors so the tents didn't have to sit on the ground. Right, right. I think probably one the humorous thing, the pilots one night, um, I think it was uh, the CO was, um, or a bunch of them got tossed out of their beds as one of the uh, flight crew um, felt something crawling over his legs in the night there was panic stations and one of the signalers had come home that night with a little baby monkey in, in his, in, inside his pocket and he'd forgotten he just hung his flying overalls up and the monkey climbed out in the night and knocked down across someone's legs <laughs> we, we uh, had a good laugh at that and, mm. awesome yes but, um, you know, when you're young, of course, it's a great experience, and, yeah. uh, and we had a good time, yeah. So was that the beginning of New Zealand's um, presence in Vietnam? It was, because, as I said, as from now, you're on active service. Yeah. Different rules apply, and in thinking about it retrospectively, I'm quite sure that in New Zealand it wasn't known about. In fact, it was called Operation Scorpion. Okay. Mm. So it was official, but not very well known. Not very well known. Yeah. It was official. And I presume that's the same uh, thing that the SAS were put on at the same time because they came up there right. as well, yeah. Okay. But we flew mainly Americans around the place, yeah. The SAS used to disappear during the day, don't know where they went. Mm. Okay. Mm. And, and are you guys... Um, oops. Just have to have this to block the wind because oh, oh, yes. it's coming this way. Um, are you guys officially recognised as veterans uh, for being in there? 
Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. Mm. Yeah, but it, um, we never found out for a long time. Just, you know, um, when you're young, you don't worry about things like that, you know. No. Yeah, it's all an experience, yeah. yeah. The biggest danger to us was the ties out on the airfield shooting wild dogs. And uh, you had to stop at the front entry when you went in and out because there was a very large machine gun pointed straight at you with a man sitting behind it with belts of ammunition. So it always played to comply with the rules. Yeah, yeah. It was a good deterrent. <laughs> yes, yeah. But um, yeah, so I had a good time in the Air Force, but when I finished up, I went into the aerial top dressing industry because I was going to go top dressing. Yep. Uh, I wanted the flight experience, but I also wanted the engineering, uh, I wanted my civil engineering exams. Uh, so I joined Thames Aerial Top Dressing at Thames. Yep. Um, worked there for a bit and then went up to Dargaville. They had a base up there and um, we did overhaul work in Thames, but at Dargaville we had quite a fleet of the aircraft up in the Northland region. Right. So we serviced those, but and then the instant I got my uh, final uh, license exams, aircraft exams, um, uh, I got all the logbooks and everything. And um, so I finished up actually running the Dargaville base for Tatco for quite a few, several years. Okay. We built a house up there then, and of course I was then was married. Um, but, but of course I was flying, I had my commercial then. Some years ago, well, when I was at Thames, I got my commercial with Harry Belby, who was flight testing officer, which was a bit of a dag because I'd flight, done my flight training, some of it with him at Blenheim, oh, right. <laughs> before he went to civil aviation. Yep. Um, and I, of course, I had a tow rating for a glide, towing gliders for many years too, mainly with Tiger Moths. Okay. Mm. Yep. But um, Dargaville, we had. Um, uh, because we did private aircraft too, the private owners, they could give a call and, and say, you know, their aircraft needed maintenance, so they'd be there when I got to work at 8 o'clock in the morning, they'd be outside the hangar. I could hop in their plane, fly back to their strip wherever it was, drop them off, and there was an assortment of aircraft, Cessna 180s and things, um, Colts, um, yeah, and then we had Cessnas and Cherokees of various models. But the, um, plus our own Fletchers, uh, it kept you pretty busy. Um, so a couple of us there doing that. But I also did loader driving for Lindsay Wheeler, who was spray piloting. And top dressing pilot, very experienced. And I'd only been out with him a couple of times. And we were lying under the wing of the Fletcher at morning tea time and he said he was going to build an aeroplane. I said, oh, what sort of aeroplane, Lindsay? And he pulled this folder out of his pocket and it was a, a, a coot amphibian. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, good gracious, I've got the same pamphlet at home and that's what I want to build, Lindsay. So we, we, we worked together and um, um, so although I was engineering, I, I floated between the two. So I did spray loader driving and ordinary loader driving. I could do that as well, you know. Um, so it was a bit of a combination of things. But um, yeah, Lindsay progressed through and he built his own aeroplane when he was at Kerry Q. Yep. Uh, he flew it. 
help finish off Sid Jensen's aircraft, did all the flight testing on Sid Jensen's Falco. Oh, okay, yep. First of the Falcos in New Zealand. Yep. Um, and Lindsay bought, built a Sirocco sometime later, and, and he built a few harps before he died. His daughter was a musician and right. found the harps quite difficult, he said, to compete with aeroplanes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so Dargaville was very good. And then eventually I reached a stage where I couldn't progress much further. I decided I'd stick with engineering rather than going full-time. I had the strip flying experience. Yep. So we, um, uh, I had a look at Air New Zealand. I could have gone to helicopters down south or um, the big jets. And anyway, I had a look at Air New Zealand and I had a few friends there. And um, anyway, they said... Um, New Zealand got hold of me very, very quickly after and said, you know, when could you start? So um, we had a house to sell and things like that. So floated between Auckland and um, Dargaville for about six months before we sold our house there. And, uh, and then I did 37 odd years with the New Zealand. Wow. Mm. And uh, they were very good, very good time, you know. We had two DC-8s when I got there and um, they were getting more and they had um, a couple of Lockheed Electras and, yep. um, and uh, of course Mangri by then was was a seal runway compared with the grass strip I was associated with and I worked, flew there. But subsequently uh, their fleet in New Zealand history is pretty well known and it grew and um, I did think of going flight engineering at one stage but uh, they didn't have too many trouble getting flight engineers, but they had trouble getting licensed engineers. Right. So I quite quickly got licensed on the various aircraft that they had. And, um, uh, yeah, so we had a good time and working at different places. I didn't take any permanent terms on outstations. I'd do stand-ins, uh, particularly at Tahiti, yep. Rarotonga. Um, you did a lot of day trips to um, Pango Pango, Borneo, um, uh, where did we go? Quite a few places actually in the Numea uh, and the Pacific Islands, quite a lot. But Pango Pango was a very common thing. I think one Christmas I did about five trips up and down to there because okay. we had no engineering staff and if you had a mechanical problem you had a broken down aeroplane. Those days, you only had DC-8 only had one hydraulic system. Right. You know, 747 had four of the darn things. <laughs> so the redundancies levels were not there in those earlier days. Might have been four engines in them. Yeah. And then DC-10s were very good. That was a big step. But um, so after several years at Air New Zealand, I got approached by Air New Zealand to see if I was interested in helping out with uh, a New Zealand aid project up in the Pacific and or up in the government was in a spot. They needed an engineer pretty quickly, someone who was experienced on the fleet agricultural and general aviation aircraft. Oh yeah. So um, um, they gave me as much time off as I wanted, like leave of absence and um, so I worked for the New Zealand government on an aid project in Bangladesh. <coughs> oh right. And uh, that was interesting, but over a year, uh, because I could fly as well, I had um, 
I could did all the flight testing when I was in Dakar. Yep. So, um, but we went up there, um, went to New Delhi, met our diplomatic personnel there, so we knew so because that's 1,200 miles away from uh, Dakar. Yep. But I did go through Dakar on the Bristol freighter, and I never in a thousand years thought I'd ever come back to that place to work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I remember well where we parked and everything. So, um, but I subsequently flew over much of that country there. Um, yeah, test flying. Every time you change something on the Fletcher, you had to do test flying. And, um, at one stage, I had to fly down to Chittagong and get a spare propeller because we had a one of the engineers had a mishap and tried to chop the tail off another fleet through. Okay. So um, bounced through the back streets of um, Chittagong with a propeller, a Fletcher propeller on my, bounced on the toe of my boot. <laughs> so chief engineer holding the other blade sticking out the back window. <laughs> but um, we had to, we had to fly back in the dark that night. That wasn't so good as. Um, but pretty minimal sort of aids. Yep. And the airport didn't have many landing lights because the locals used to dig them out and melt them down. They were brass, you see. Right, right. So um, landing in the dark. But um, you had the Intercon Hotel near Dakar flying up on. But it was um, yeah. But mostly it was very very interesting. Once you got above about 4,000 feet, your IFR on a clear day. As, um, the haze was so thick you couldn't see the ground. Yep. Yep. But uh, we did have an ADF on it, so okay. um, on, the, on the Fletchers. And I got involved with um, putting an air conditioning unit in one of the Fletchers, that was interesting. I used the gas from the cholera hospital and they all got to know me pretty well in there. Yeah. So, we had a very interesting time up there, and of course, the, near the end of my time there, we had a coup. Oh. Bang, bang, and tanks up and down the streets, and, and it does give you a funny feeling if you're sitting in the engineer's office on this airport, military airport, military joint, civil military at Dakar, and some of those involved in the coup came in, and uh, we sort of knew each other because they were Air Force personnel. And they said, oh, we're looking for a few MPs still. And um, we think it would be better than your safety to stay home for a while because we're a bit concerned they might kidnap you and get them, get you to fly them out of the country. Okay. So um, that sort of um, puts a different light on it. Yeah, so, definitely. Mm. Yeah. So we did. We had a forced poker time for a while <laughs> but um, we by then had found with our project we had a 16 millimeter projector and I found the British High Commission had movie films up there they were educational type but um, uh, and because it was with the government um, we were able I could go and draw a movie film from them and I'd draw half a dozen of these films and, and I'd put a few on it at night and we'd have the local cooks and um, bed sweepers and what have you in the, and sitting around the hall, you know, friends of our, our own cook and, and servants. Yep. And um, and then they said, you know, would it be right if you leave the windows open? I said, yeah, no trouble at all. Well, in our gates, we never locked our front gates. 
We never had anything stolen, never had any problems with the locals. And um, anyway, what, you know, one particular night I looked out there and there were sea of faces, hundreds of every pushcart waller and poor person in the district would have been, you know, watching the movie for show on the big white wall we had. Yep. Didn't cost us anything. Free film for them, something that they'd never get to experience. And it was great to do it for them. Yeah, and they appreciated it. Mm. Fantastic. So, um, yeah, we had a good time. Hmm. But it was difficult for a lot of the people. We did have a protection group come around one area there. And, um, but I had a little talk with them over at the front gate. Much, much of the concern of the um, ladies and uh, we were at a friend's place at the time and he was with the um, uh, uh, UNESCO and um, so it was really around their district where it happened but we had a little chat and said well you know, we're up here working and helping making your country improve anyway we talked to them they decided that um, they'd give us free protection nice <laughs> <laughs> excellent yeah uh, so, um, you know, how about now? Uh, you're obviously involved with uh, SAA and, and you're here at Black Sands. How, how are you involved? Did you build that plane in the end? And yes, right through those early days. I've been right from the early days to Stan Smith, Robin Hickmans and uh, um, some of those people there down at um, Parparam. Some of the first ones, the early 60s, I was involved with it, interested, but I wasn't in a position to build anything until later on right. when I got established at Air New Zealand and then I built my own amphibian, the right. coot. Oh, you did build it then? I then. built the coot. Yep. And um, lived, I designed it so the, the systems, I lived on a trailer. Yep. I could take it home, fold it by myself. Took it from the time the prop stopped turning to the time I was in the car driving home, which could be half an hour. Yep. And from the top, if I was taking it to the airport, uh, it was 45 minutes usually, assembly time, and that included a pre-flight and possibly tipping some fuel in it. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. So, yeah, carried two people. Um, it only had minimum, it had 150 horsepower engine, and it should really have had 160 or 180. Um, so I, uh, experimenting on the southern lakes, I found I could only a uh, 16 year old uh, niece was the heaviest I could take up at off Lake Tekapo with me on board. Yeah, it didn't like the f fresh water. But then subsequent to that, I learned the tricks of getting on the step and shallow water and a few other things. Or using the wind to work you. Uh, get a tailwind to push you along, so you get up on the step. Yep. Yep. and then turn into wind. So there's a few little tricks you learned. And um, some I learned from the CB Air guys. Yep. Um, my time at Air New Zealand, we overhauled a turbo goose that CB Air operated in the Pacific and uh, that was a project that was given to me. And we, um, uh, I got to fly on that every time it flew for legal reasons. Yep. Okay. And uh, that was very interesting, but we flew that off Lake Tarawira initially. Hmm. 
Mangari to Tarawira. Uh, yeah. Hey Bruce, could you leave that for a bit? We're just recording it, mate. Cheers. The um, 46 minutes, I think, from off the runway at um, Mangari to on the water at Lake Tarawira. That was in the Turbo Goose, up to six and a half thousand feet. Right. Mm. Okay. Two PT6s in it. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we had, uh, there was another little escapade, but, uh, yeah, no, I had a good time at the New Zealand. I did, I ran the, um, amongst other things, the, the composite shop, which is fibre reinforced plastic work, yep. um, and all the cabin furnishings, the bits you see when you get in an aeroplane, um, and landing gears, wheels, brakes, I became a specialist in those. Um, and um, a lot of um, the bits that flap and waggle in the breeze. Um, so it was a combination of, in those early days, you'd do things down the line, you certified the line aircraft. And, or out on the outstations, you had that as well. But later years now, they've become much more documented. In those earlier days, uh, there weren't the minimum equipment list systems that they have today, the more timely defined. Yep. So we had to make a lot of masterful decisions and uh, one night with an aircraft out of LA, 7-4, crew called up and they gave me some figures and they said they had some vibration figures and so I asked them to repeat them and they said well what you're telling me, you've got a problem with that engine. Um, it's, it's, it's something let go in it. Yep. So they, um, you know, we need to shut it down. Yep. Three or four minutes later, they called up and they shut the engine down. And they were dumping fuel, returning, and um, yes, it had um, let go. Yep. Mm. But we didn't. We just started operating the aircraft then, and we didn't have a contract. So I, the nearest engine was San Francisco. So I got on the phone and organised to get the San Francisco engine sent down and um, said well, we haven't got a contract and I said no send us it. So I don't know, 20, 20 odd pages came through on a fax machine and um, so I, I signed off contract, lease contract, <laughs> so that uh, the engine could be sent down because you make no money with aeroplanes sitting on the ground. And, um, no, no one argued or anything else. It's that um, had to happen. Yeah, exactly. So we got the engine changed done and got it back in the air. Oh, and one day at Tahiti, I was waving goodbye to the DC-10. Well, we went off to got locks and we went off down the runway. And just before the nose wheel lifted off, there was a ten-foot of flame shot out the one of the wing engines and number one, I think it was. Um, and as soon as I saw it, I knew it had done the engine. So the power came off, the crew hit the brakes and they stopped right on the end of the runway. And of course it affected the hydraulics with one engine shut down and um, so their turning radius in one direction was a bit restricted. But anyway, they stopped there for a while while the brakes cooled down. And, and um, by then I'd got on the phone to Wellington and um, said, we got an engine change. Yep. I haven't seen it yet, but I can tell you, we need another engine. Yep. So in those days, the DC-10 engines come up in two halves, and so they have a team to assemble them. 
Okay. And they got to where the change was taking place. Another team to change it. And in, um, in this particular instance, I'd, it was about 10 to 8 in the morning and I'd arranged to meet my, meet my wife and kids in town at the big gun. And, Oh, cripes, this is going to screw things up well and tree. Well, you know, I taxied in. I talked with the um, military commander of the base and said, where can we park this plane? Because there was no way of towing it. Yeah. And they had a meeting said, yep, right here. So I could, when they taxied in, got a park there. And um, a UTA, I said, can we have a hand to... We've got an engine change, and they said, yep, this afternoon we'll get someone for you. Yep. And uh, I still made about quarter past nine in the town um, to meet the family. So, But the poor old flight crew, they got a fright, and they were chattering like monkeys for quite a while. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> yeah. But both pilots thought they'd blown the nose wheel tire, but the flight engineer knew what had happened. Yep. He saw the EGTs race away yep. one engine there and the fuel flow. Yeah, and anyway, the, um, yeah, there was a batch of six blades that let go. Yeah. One, one had let go and I'd taken another six off that wheel and, yeah, so we're stuffed with right there. <coughs> so, um, yeah, you had these little moments, but with big aircraft, it's a team effort, so everyone does their bit and, and they fly. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Are you still flying now? I, look, I've just stopped right flying basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, the last plane I flew into here was um, the Air Cam. I flew the Air Cam, which is a twin engine high wing pusher. Right, yep. Two uh, Rotex engines. Um, a friend of mine got that and uh, he didn't have a license to fly it, so I flew it for quite a while. Okay. Quite a few years actually. We came in here several times uh, yep. for Black Sands. Um, yeah. But. Uh, um, yeah, so I, I enjoy flying. I've always have, but I haven't flown gliders for probably about 15 years, and it would be quite nice to do that as well, yeah. yeah. But, so I wanted another challenge, so I built a hovercraft instead. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. But it's an economy version, 25 horsepower, lightweight, very quiet. Uh, 72 inch diameter uh, Ivo propeller on the back, so micro propeller in the cage, and a fan underneath it, so it's not noisy. Mm. Right. Fan's buried in it. And, um, very low pressure air. You could taxi across this grass area here without blowing any dust around virtually. It's okay. um, yeah, quite unusual. Mm. It's mainly for watercraft, water operations. And, yep. mm. And to go up the waterways that I couldn't get up with my wing, with my coot amphibian, right, which was too big. Yeah. See, the coot was 56 knots, lift off and touch down on the water. Okay. And that's not a problem in open water. Off the harbour here was no trouble. Yep. But in a confined water area like the Waikato River, I was always nervous. Yeah. Um, taking off. Landing wasn't a problem because you could look down beforehand and check. There was no people or objects in the willows. Or, but, um, yeah, so I never had any accidents and I, um, I was pretty cagey. Pretty cagey. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank mm. you very much for taking the time to 
talk about your flying career and your engineering career. It's been fantastic. Well, it's been enjoyable. I, I certainly have enjoyed it. And, uh, and I'm still involved with the SAA, of course. I've yeah, been the yeah. executive for many, many years, but yeah. it's time I retired. So. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of uh, Black Sands anyway. Thank you very much. I'll Cheers. do that. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. I'm talking with Doug King. Uh, how have you enjoyed the uh, Black Sands? Well, it's been a really good day. The weather's been uh, amazing and um, a huge turnout. Looks like uh, in excess of 100 aircraft. Yeah. Um, so, all very, very good. Yeah. And uh, as well as enjoying the uh, flying and, and, you know, the, the sun here, you've also been promoting a few uh, yes. aircraft here. Yeah. Um, we, um, we have the agency uh, from Aeropract, um overseas in Europe um, and we carry the Foxbat aircraft um, the two aircraft it's uh, the, the one which we have been selling for a long time is an A22 LS um, of which we have uh, now 15 in New Zealand and 160 over 160 in, in Australia um, and um, <coughs> we've just released the new A32 um, which very similar aircraft um, basic difference is that they have um, really um, made it slippery and uh, done away with a lot of the drag. Um, so both aircraft are still um, uh, options. The A22 is probably the uh, more rugged one for um, uh, more of the really short field landings, um, bad um, field la or hard field landings and that kind of thing. Um, but um, the new aircraft also, the A32, um, it has a stall speed, funny enough, of one uh, knot less than the A32, so it can still handle the short fields and um, that kind of um, option. Right. But on the other end, um, it's got the top end um, of 115 to 120 knots, which is quite amazing because of the configuration in that. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> with that particular aircraft, it's now brought into um, being the fact that uh, a person can have all of the requirements for short uh, landing, landing and takeoff. They can also just go touring at a nice cruise speed of uh, in excess of 115. Um, the A22 um, still uh, cruise speed is around the 95 knots. Right, okay. And I've been watching uh, is it, uh, ZK LFG going up and up and up. Uh, it seems to be uh, getting a lot of flights today. Yeah, a lot of interest today. Um, um, four or five um, very interested uh, people and funnily enough people who have never flown, um, of which we've managed to make some sales of late. Um, who always People who've always thought they could never afford nor uh, accomplish the flying technique and um, so yeah those are the kind of people who come on we teach them um, out at Mercer and um, hopefully then they buy an aircraft or at least they syndicate with somebody else and and get hold of a, a fox bear. Now, these types of aircraft are almost um, not, not eclipsing but they're, they're, they're coming alongside the home builders themselves in the old days you, could, you couldn't afford a plane so you went and built one but now these are much more affordable uh, you know, light sport aircraft, aren't they? Sure. Well, basically, it's um, GA, General Aviation, 
um, has become so expensive worldwide, not only for the aircraft but uh, for maintenance and also for um, pilots um, to maintain uh, their um, uh, <coughs> to get past the, the uh, sort of annual physical inspections and stuff like that. Um, so it's come into its own because people now can fly affordably and those very people that I said who always said I could never afford that, all of a sudden they can afford these aircraft now and um, you know not that they've um, made a huge, a huge amount of money, it's just that the cost of the aircraft have come down, right. um, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, thank you very much. Yeah, well, thanks very much for the for the interview. Appreciate that, man. No problem. All right. I'm John, John Farmer, and I'm Peter Beer. And uh, how's your day gone today at Black Sands? Oh, it's been fantastic. Lots of friends and many many aircraft well over a hundred so uh, fine weather light winds been lovely and um, you've uh, you've been flying around a bit haven't you yes we, we're just working out uh, what our times are but uh, we've been to the beach and we've each taken two or three people for a ride so uh, we've we've done two hours today or each or one yeah, we've probably done uh, more than an hour each of flying, and uh, it's it's been interesting. I know I've met people that I haven't seen for a long time, yep. and um, really delighted to see them all hail and hearty. And um, yes, we really enjoyed the, the run up to the beach and the beach landing. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the beach landing. Well, um, we. went um, a bit north of the um, beach that we were to land on yes. and came down the coast and um, decided to cut in quite close to the headland and uh, that's when you start to get the best out of feeling out of an aeroplane is when you're close to objects and uh, you can feel the, the speed and the acceleration and that's what we love our little aeroplane for because uh, we can pretend we're seagulls and we can take off from one paddock and over the over the hedge and into the next. Uh, we're, we're not interested in uh, going from A to B in a, at a great rate of knots. We just like to have fun, don't we? Yes. Mm. Yeah. So you, you're kind of the boy racers of the air. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're the wheelchair warriors of the air. <laughs> we. Uh, Peter is nearer to 90 than 80, um, I'm nearer to 80 than 90, and together our ages add up to 170. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So uh, tell me about your backgrounds on aviation. When, when did you start flying? Um, about 1960, about 1965, uh, I was a compass adjuster and all the uh, commercial vessels, even little launches on the lakes at Taupo and Rotorua, they all had to have their compass adjusted. And um, I found that you could hire an aircraft with an instructor from the Aero Club and he would fly you to the various fields. These 
people would pick you up and you'd go on their launch and spend three quarters of an hour maybe adjusting their compass and then fly on to the next lot and they all paid your expenses and the instructor would let me fly the plane occasionally and then uh, I decided why shouldn't I fly myself so that's how I started. And how about you Peter? I I started when my sons uh, finished their education and uh, I had enough time and cash to start flying and that was with the Auckland Aero Club in about 1974, I suppose, later than John. Um, and um, I then later joined the Warbirds and uh, contributed to several syndicates. Uh, at one stage I had an interest in 13 aircraft, would you believe? Um, from uh, Cubs uh, and uh, Cessnas, 152s, 172s, 206 we used to, we owned, so we, I, I had shares in, in syndicates, yep. um, for 18 years we owned a Tiger Moth, BRM, um, we owned an Oster for a similar amount of time, um, and I belonged to the beaver syndicate and used used the beaver in the South Island um, and all around for, for many years and um, um, I'm one of the 50 owners of the DC3 oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. and uh, I've been very fortunate in, in that I've been able to fly a number of different uh, old vintage aircraft um, and uh, I can vouch for the fact that the, the flying, the flying the tiger moth over those about 18 years taught me something about flying. Yeah. So I ended up as a private pilot with about two and a half thousand hours, uh, and um, then as I got older and couldn't hack the medical for my private pilot's license, um, gradually these lovely little microlight aircraft, which are have really developed and are very sophisticated nowadays, yes. uh, have filled the gap for me right. and I'm lucky at my age to be still flying. Yeah, yeah. So it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I actually, I have noticed that a lot of the people here are sort of 60 and over um, and they're obviously people that have flown for a long time and, and yes. keeping going like yourself, which is, yes. it's great, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. It is marvellous. And so how long have you been involved with uh, SAA and um, how long have you been coming to Black Sands? I've only been coming for the, about the last four years and um, but since John and I have owned uh, the little Foxbat together I've discovered that uh, John has been a member for many years of these organisations and um, I tag along and uh, yeah, we, we we usually fly together to these fly-ins, don't we? So how far back do you go with SAA, John? Um, almost to the beginning, not quite. Um, Auckland Aero Club built a, an aircraft, an Emeraud home-built aircraft, when the Suez Canal was closed, I think, and there was a lack of petrol. We couldn't fly, the club couldn't fly. Somebody in the club got the bright idea 
that we would take on a project and it was this emerald, it, we got it partly built and uh, I spent five years working on that under the tutelage of uh, an old aircraft engineer who'd retired and um, Phil Chinnery Brown was his name, he was well known in gliding circles and he was well known at the local tobacco shop as um, a chain smoker right. and uh, I, I often had the job, I had to drop whatever I was doing and hop in my car and go down to the shop to buy him another packet of cigarettes. <laughs> but anyway, I learned an awful lot and since then I've built seven aircraft. Wow. And uh, I pro twice promised my wife I would never build another one. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> For the listeners out there, he's got a very cheeky grin on right now. <laughs> so yes. what, what, what were the ones that you built? Well, I got the agency for Pelican Aircraft. They were from Canada, and the early ones were microlites, and they were the first microlites to come into New Zealand that actually had a fuselage. Yeah. All the others had wires and tubes and things, and they had a four-stroke engine, uh, a flat twin four-stroke engine sort of based on half a Volkswagen right. and I built two of those then they came out with quite a sophisticated uh, composite aircraft high wing looking a bit like a Cessna 150 and you could either have it with a nose wheel or as a tail dragger and it had the 912 the Rotex 912 engine in and they were very uh, uh, successful, very. They flew very well, and uh, I built um, four of those. I think it was, and then um, I got a kit. Got the kit for a, a four-fifth scale Tiger Moth, oh, wow. and um, I built that. Um, it took me five years to build it, one year to crash it, and I've just spent six years rebuilding it. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, I'd like to get that flying again. It has a, a really good scale looking engine. It, it's a, a Micron engine from the Czech Republic. And it's just like a Gypsy Major, a little Gypsy Major, inverted, four cylinder. It's got the air scoop on the left side, carburetor on the right, two magnetos hanging down, and a big mahogany propeller. And... Um, it's very close to being finished, very nearly uh, flying again. Oh, right, okay. Mm. So where's, where's that going to be based, or where, where will we see it in the future? Um, I'd like it to be at Matter Matter, but Hangerage is getting very short at Matter Matter, apparently. Okay. Matter Matter's a good field for Tiger Moths. You can do two or three ground loops without upsetting anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Very good. You were talking about old LAME aircraft engineers. Yes. Like Phil, Phil Chenry Brown. Yes. Um, Arthur Liddell, was it? No, Charlie Liddell. Charlie Liddell, yeah. yeah. Arthur, um, Arthur, um, uh, hmm. yeah, we Arthur and Natalie. Uh, that's right, yes, hmm. yeah. Um, we, we should have... This is a very 
good way of collecting information and uh, uh, yes we wished that we had done this with these old boys who, who knew all the, the wrinkles all the tricks and it was yeah. Arthur and Natalie Revel. Revel, that's right. Yes. 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 I've heard the name of it. Yes. yes. Yeah. And um, they were a font of knowledge. They had, they knew things that they didn't impart to anybody else, little tricks of the trade. And we wished we'd uh, talk to them about it when they were, because none of them are here now. Right, here. right, yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually one of the things I've been doing with my show is going around to the older uh, pilots and engineers and, yeah. and and just getting them to tell their stories and yeah. it's it's so worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, they, you know, nobody lives forever and their secrets die with them if they're not careful. Yeah. And they're great stories as well. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Yes, yes we've all got stories to tell about our flying. <laughs> It's one of those things. Flying, flying is addictive, and um, I really think that most pilots um, have to go flying at regular intervals to satisfy their um, addiction. <laughs> and uh, some of them are so disgruntled with the fact that they have this addiction that they try to impose it on other people and teach them to fly. <laughs> it's their yeah. only way of getting their own back. <laughs> yeah. Well, you couldn't uh, you couldn't have a better place to um, you know feed that addiction than a place like this with uh, 120 or so aircraft all flying in and flying around the circuit in wonderful, the sunshine. Wonderful variety of aircraft. And um, we are very lucky in this country. We have a broad spectrum of different aircraft and um, the home-builts and uh, the more sophisticated um, microlight aircraft now. And it's, 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 it's a new age, it is. It's really um, going back to grassroots and developing and I must admire, I always admired um, uh, airline uh, pilots who come back to grassroots and, and, and fly off grass paddocks with small aeroplanes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been uh, a pleasure to talk with you, and I'm glad that you're enjoying the weekend. Thank you, kindly. Thank you. Okay, I'm talking with Willie. Uh, what's your last name, Willie? Do I need to have one? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm talking with Willie. Hey, how's your day been? Fabulous, fabulous. Came down from Kaiko here this morning and uh, the weather was just beautiful. And to arrive here at Raglan with amongst the sea of aircraft of, um, and, and meet fellow enthusiasts such as yourself. Yep, yep. Uh, absolutely great, and to meet them year after year and uh, at other other venues is just just marvellous. What what did you fly down in? I flew down in a Foxpath, um, one that I keep on my home strip in the in a valley in uh, in um, 
an un with an unknown GPS location in the north. <laughs> yeah, it's been really good. Oh, cool. Um, so, how long have you been involved with uh, SAA and and this sort of um, organisation and the event? I've been um, involved with uh, events of SAA and a member of SAA over, um, off and on over a period of about thirty years. And uh, so I have, um, uh, I'm a long-time enthusiast. Right. Yeah. Okay. And how did you first get involved with aviation? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was flying with a, with a, in a commercial aircraft and there was the pilot and myself and decided that the pilot wasn't necessary. It was surplus to requirements, so I took some lessons and became the pilot myself. Right, right. That's yeah. exactly what um, John was saying. Oh, right. Yeah, same thing with him. Yeah. <laughs> so whereabouts did you learn to fly? I learned at North Shore. Oh, yeah. 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 Cool. In um, 1970, oh, 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And we flew 152s, etc. And then after a number of years, the microlight fraternity or aircraft began to emerge. Yep. And so there was a, a, a drift towards microlights because of affordability and uh, um, later technology and fuel efficiency and reliability of engines, etc., etc., and lightness of aircraft and less rules and regulations, which suited a lot of the... the the pilots of my era anyway yeah. and, and so we drifted into microlights but still fly the 182s and the 172s etc as part of what we do yep. but microlights in general is the way to go as, as pilots become older and uh, need to continue their, their skills and experience and, and to share their knowledge okay cool well, uh, any last thoughts about Black Sands? I just started. I just got going. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, we'll keep, keep going. <laughs> May there be many more. <laughs>
the, the, I think the beauty of the, the wing design is that the inboard sections of the wing will store before the outer sections, which means that the stall is much more controllable than many aircraft and you can fly confidently quite slowly, right. which is great for manoeuvring um, in tight spaces and valleys and um, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. And how about you, Peter? I've got a Vans RV6, so uh, that's a tail dragger. Yep. And I've had that for three years now. And uh, it's a tricky little type to fly, but it's good fun. It's very quick. Um, and um, I just love it. I'm out every weekend in it, going somewhere, doing something. Right. How did you get into flying? <coughs> oh, I started in the 1980s. Um, where actually I saw a sandwich board at the Pauperam airfield saying trial flights. Right. So and I had nothing much to do and probably too much money. So I went and had um, went and had a had a trial flight and you know ten feet off the ground I was hooked. And that and was the end of having too much money. And that was the end of having too much money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, and I flew pretty actively in my younger days for I don't know three or four years and then I moved away and it was houses and wives and and there was no money. <laughs> um, but then after a hiatus of 13 years um, I still could not not look at an aircraft flying overhead and uh, so I got back into the flying again got my licence back and um, I'm pretty active in the aeroclub scene so I was flying an aeroclub um, aircraft and then it was a natural progression into you know I've always dreamed of having my own aircraft and looked around and did all the research and decided that an RV was for me and found one and Great. wore my wife down until <laughs> <laughs> she said yes. <laughs> uh, what's the advantage of having one of these nice modern RVs over the jodel of the past? Well, they're two completely different aircraft, yeah. really. Different um, purposes altogether, really. Different yeah. purposes. I mean, my my passion is I like going places. Um, and an RV is a great cross-country machine, but it's also pretty versatile. I mean, like it's aerobatic, um, and I wanted something that I could grow into. It's, as I say, it's a little bit tricky to fly. It's a tail dragger, yeah. um, and um, uh, you know I've got, and it's aerobatic, and I've got room to grow as a pilot. Whereas, I mean, I could have gone and bought a 172, for example, um, but how's that going to be different from an Aeroclub 172? How am I going to grow? Probably not much. Um, so um, that's that's the main reason why I chose that type. But it's quite different from a Jodel. And whereabouts did you, or and when did you learn to fly? <coughs> well, back in about 1972, I was working at Gisborne Airport, and I really had no particular interest in learning to fly before that. <coughs> um, but looking out the office window, I constantly saw all sorts of aircraft coming and going, the Friendships, the New Zealand Friendships, or NAC back in those days. <coughs> there was a local flying school, um, Grumman AA1s and an AA5, and lots and lots of top dressing aircraft. Um, there was a heap of top dressing aircraft in Gisborne in those days. <coughs> so um, I was pretty young, um, and I decided to give it a go, so I sold my motorbike and paid a deposit with um, the local flying school and did some lessons. Um, then the money ran out and the price of fuel went up and I had a baby and um, it all went on hold for a lot longer than Peter actually. I, I put it on hold for about 35 years. 
<coughs> and then um, we were on holiday. Um, we did a trip to Alaska, and um, I'd always been I'd read books about bush flying and stuff. And you know, I like Peter. I had a hankering to keep to get back into flying. Yeah. <coughs> and we saw a demonstration of bush flying up in Fairbanks. Um, cubs operating off short strips, and I said to my wife, "That's what I'd like to do." And um, the next thing I know, I had a birthday, and um, I got a trial flight in a Piper Cub, which was the aircraft we saw in Alaska. And um, I thought, "Well, yeah, this is fantastic." And again, I, le- I had a trial flight for a bit, a bit over an hour, and loved it. And then put it on hold for another year, and I kept talking about it, and. Um, but like Peter wore my wife down probably and um, the next birthday I got um, basically a piece of paper that said go and get a PPL um, so I got my PPL in the cub and um, then after I did that I started flying Cessnas um, because they were accessible and easy and um, so I did that for a couple of years and then the, the idea of having a tail dragger really kept appealing to me getting into remote strips getting into grass strips and yeah, I was probably feeling a bit bored with flying the club aircraft, so um, the Jodel had always appeared to me, appealed to me as a type, and um, a bit more wearing the wife down probably. And uh, eventually, the um, CFI at the local aero club rang me and said that my name had come to the top of the list for getting a space in the hangar. Would I like to take it up? And I was, gosh, <laughs> give me a month and I'll think about it. And I paid a month's rent and. Um, found a jodel and uh, away we went yeah and it, it's great I mean doing the beach landing is just the sort of thing I love to do um, I love landing on grass strips I don't much like big airports and um, yeah getting around landing on short strips grass strips interesting places um, really loving it and I'm still really a beginner in lots of ways you know I haven't done that much flying but uh, really learning and loving it and um, you know, tell me about uh, SAA and, and you know, <coughs> what it means to you, you guys. Um, I got into SAA basically because when I bought my aircraft <coughs> it was in an SAA hangar. <coughs> and so um, uh, that sort of introduced me to SAA. Um, I've not built an aircraft. My aircraft was, although it's a kit-built aircraft, you know, was flying when I built it. Um, but I do enjoy the SAA fly-ins and that, because I'm quite active in the Aero Club movement, but the SAA fly-ins, where you actually get to meet a lot of people that have actually built and they know about the internal workings of the aircraft and that, which is quite different from the Aero Club scene, which is more about people that want to go and fly, you know, they start the aircraft and it works and yeah. that's the end of it sort of thing. Whereas, you know, particularly when you own your own aircraft, there's all the little questions about, you know, is this right, how can I improve that? Um, and that's that's one of the. I'd be interested to know what you think about this. But one of the beauties of, of owning your own aircraft is that it introduces you to a whole new world of flying that you didn't even know was there. Because all of a sudden you have to understand, you know, the maintenance regulations and and you know safety. Well, m- more about the machine safety rather than the flying safety. Right. Um, and I mean, I spend hours on websites looking for toys for my aircraft and. <laughs> Um, you know how, how it can be improved and and all that sort of stuff and particularly with the RV there's a huge aftermarket um, supply chain out there right. yeah, you can get all sorts of things for them um, I mean really as long as you've got money in your wallet you can have anything you want just about for an RV so 
So the, yeah, the SAA has, brought, has introduced me more to the aircraft as the machine rather than the flying part of it. And from my point of view, um, Peter recommended that I join the SAA when I was talking to him about owning an aircraft. Um, and I've probably seen it in somewhat different light. Uh, I haven't been, this is the first SAA event I've been to. Um, well, I've been in it for two and a half years. Um, but I like the advocacy side of what they do, um, you know, working for um, private pilots, um, private owners. Um, organising events like this, so that's really what I like about the, the value about the SAA. Yeah. And as far as owning an aircraft is concerned, one thing I love is the freedom. Um, and that means instead of booking a club aircraft and being tied to that booking slot, you know, you might book it from three till four, and you arrive at the club and you find the previous person's overrun their time, so the you know, you're sort of eating into your slot and then you know that someone else has got it booked after you and the way it is now with it, with my own aircraft I decide when I want to fly when the weather's looking good um, sometimes I'll go to the club and I'll wash the aircraft and I'll just do a few things I might go and have lunch then come back and the weather's right and I'll go for a fly and you know just that ability to do what I want to do when I want to do it um, and you know the, the other side of that of course is the downtime when it's being maintained and it's sitting over in the engineer's hangar for longer than I would want and costing more than I would want. But somehow the good side always outweighs that. The, the freedom to be able to do what I want and not have to worry about bookings and constraints around that. Yeah, absolutely, I can understand that. <coughs> um, where have you guys got your aircraft based? Where, where Both at Paraparam. Both at Paraparam. Um, so had you flown into Raglan before? Yeah, well, we had a club trip here. Um, in March this year. I think it was March, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Oh, that was my first time and you've been before. Yeah, I was at the Black Sands last year um, and off the back of that, because I'm the secretary of the Cabotera Club, then I thought it was an ideal place for um, for a club trip because it's, you know, you got the camping ground here is nice and handy, so accommodation's not a problem, you don't need road transport, um, there's something for the ladies, there's little, you know, knick shops and all that sort of stuff so it sort of ticks all the boxes as a place to go a little bit a little bit tricky to get into so it's a wee bit challenging as well um so um yeah it was quite a we had quite a few i can't remember how many we had about six five five yeah. yeah, and a good crew and everybody really enjoyed themselves and it's just that a little bit further away from power param so it's it's a bit of an adventure rather than just a quick half an hour flight up the road sort of thing um, so no, it's good it's a good place actually and it's a lovely spot it is. Good, that's, yeah. that's great. Um, one last question. You guys both got into aviation young and then had a big hiatus before you got back into it. And I'm just wondering, today there's been a lot of um, light sport type aircraft that they're quite, quite a lot cheaper than going and buying an aircraft was when you guys mm, were mm. young. Do you think they might... <coughs> Get, they might hook the younger people to stay longer in it um, and, and not just drop it and go away and then have to come back later in life? Do you think that's going to change the way things happen? Because I've heard this story many, many times yeah. of guys well, who start out and then they they, they just get But away. I think for young people, when I'm talking like people in their 20s, say, you don't see a whole lot of those people getting into the sport aircraft, or at least I don't see that. Most, I mean, at our club for certain, people are in that age bracket are tending to be looking towards their commercial licence. Right, right. um, 
um, and it's mainly people who are well established, you know, older people um, who, perhaps like us, kids have grown up, left home, um, and mortgages are paid off and all that sort of stuff. Because, you know, the, the light sport aircraft are not cheap, really. Um, and I think that's still a barrier, really. Um, I love, love the revolution that's going on with light sport aircraft. I think I look at some of the things on the field here and they just blow me away with the, with the technology, the developments that were never happening with conventional GA aircraft. Um, it's a revolution, really. Yeah. And, of course, some training's happening in them as well. Exactly, yeah. <coughs> yeah. And, and all yeah. sorts of other things mm. that used to be... Um, I mean, for example... I was um, talking earlier with someone who was saying that the uh, the Fox bats have been used to tow gliders. Yeah, and, that's and, right. And they've yeah. taken over the, from the big radio engine bloody top mm. dressers it yeah. used to. Mm. So that's mm. yeah, it's quite yeah. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I know our club looked um, in the last year or two, really, didn't we? Looked at um, what the replacement for the training fleet would be, and the feeling was that the traditional Cessna 152 was pretty hard to beat. That a lot of these things are really great the light sports are really great private aircraft but maybe they're not really ideal for the club for environment for the rigors of, of <coughs> being the dropped, dropped from training. 30 feet mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. and constantly because it's the, all mm. the trainees coming yeah. through yeah. one yeah. after the other yeah. all doing it yeah. 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 yeah So, um, but if you get into like the younger people um, getting into light sport aircraft I mean the operating costs are lower um, which is good because you're rem- you're removing one of the barriers, but there's still there's still a lot of costs with learning to fly. I mean, you know, the medical charges, um, airways charges, all that sort of stuff. It's still not a cheap sport, even with light sport aircraft. And I mean, like within Flying New Zealand, they target young eagles to introduce youth to aviation, and that's great. That's and that should be done. Um, but a youth either goes down the, I want to do this as a career, and so then they would go and do their commercial or the rest of it, and then they're lost to the aeroclub movement anyway, because yeah. they're off into the commercial world, yeah. um, or else they just run out of puff and run out of money and all the rest of it. And I mean, if the, if the passion's been lit and burns, like Tony and I, you know, 30 years later or whatever, <coughs> come back, and then we talk about the, the bald eagles or the grey eagles, you know, <laughs> where... Um, kids are off your hands. You've got a little bit more disposable income, and a bit more time as well. Um, and then that's—I mean, it's a sad fact of life. I mean, you look around the people around here. You know, they're all probably forty plus. Um, um, but that's—you know—and it doesn't matter whether you're in a light sport aircraft or a, um, a conventional GA aircraft. It still costs money to run it. More rest of it. It's just a matter of degree. That's all. Even if you're not running it, just hangering it is exactly. expensive so yeah yeah, yeah I, can, I can totally understand that mm. uh, one last thing I want to say is I just want to just give you a shout out for um, being an avid fan of this show oh I, you think it, you do a great job thank mm. you it's yeah. not that often that people just out of the blue come up and say hey are yeah. you the guy that runs yeah. the Wings Over New Zealand show because I recognised your voice so. yeah <laughs> No, I think you do a good job and it's I mean it's great to document those military stories that you know hey in a few years they'll be lost yeah. and so it's good to get the get the record and I mean it's genuinely I mean I'm not a I'm, I mean I'm interested in warbirds but I'm not a warbird nut yeah. but I really enjoy what you do for the New Zealand history part of it as well thank you so um, keep up the good work thanks very much guys I okay. appreciate it thank you
Well, I'm talking with Bruce McDonald, who's one of the committee members for the Waikato Thames Valley chapter. Hi, Bruce. Yeah, hello. How are you going? <laughs> yeah, good. Um, yeah, tell me about uh, how you got involved with uh, SAA and, and Black Sands. Well, my involvement, I suppose, is the aviation mania. Probably started with primary school, being across the road from Galatea Airfield. Uh, one or two tiger moths dropped by, the Air Force called in now and again. Uh, probably the most spectacular part was when a little tailor craft got lost between Hamilton and Wairoa and uh, the Air Force turned up with Harvards and Devons and were flipping around there for a couple of days. Uh, probably helped by the fact that our school do rooms had massive doors on them which were open most of the time. <laughs> Um, I wasn't able to uh, even well the Air Force wouldn't give me a spanner to drive they wanted to give me a pen so I did not take that up uh, had a mania oh because I had uh, years of form 1 and 2 I was in bed with a hip problem um, yeah, my dad uh, spent a fair bit of money on aeroplane kits and the district all gave me plastic models and of quite a community. Um, I was perched in the lounge at home and uh, the ceiling was had lots of aeroplanes hanging from it. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, I think I, I kept that interest up until probably later teens when uh, in fact I couldn't get a PPL because of a eye problem. Um, so I buried that mania got on with life, working, farming, um, and we shifted to Furry Papa South in 1979, yep. and in 1983 the neighbour, being a Harding, had to go and get himself a private pilot's licence and an aeroplane, yep. so then there was a few AOPA events there to which I sort of sneaked in on, yeah, one occasion somebody says, um, well there's a guy at the aero club, he's only got one eye, and I thought well I've got better than only one eye, yeah. so I rang Wellington and the, quack down there said um, oh we want you to fly which is a bit of a surprising statement in today's uh, conditions it is isn't it <laughs> uh, he said we'll never give you an ATPL but that's okay I said I'm a bit old for that because I was 48 at the time so I very quickly got up to Waikato Aero Club uh, took four years to get my license due to giving work priority yep. and probably one or two Items at the Aero Club could have been a bit better. <laughs> uh, no sooner got, well, 12 months after getting my licence, I went and bought a much bigger block of dirt, uh, which had a mortgage on it, so my priority in life is paying your debts. So flying took a bit of a backseat. Uh, didn't do a heck of a lot, really. Uh, I had that block of land for five years before we reduced it to a very small piece. And then um, in 2007, we were building a cow shed ourselves. It took us a, quite a long time, 18 months in fact. Uh, and this little aeroplane turned up on aviation news for sale. And it was a neat little aeroplane, photographed over the sea, made a real good sales point. So I looked at it, and oh, we've got a cow shed to build, I better get on with that. And some several months later, it was advertised again at a reduced price. Said to the family, I'm going to Rangiora on Sunday, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I went down to Ringiora, we went for a fly in it. Uh, it was owned by a Pac Blue captain. So I sort of assumed that everything would be in order. And uh, I just, there and then, got no one to look at it, yeah. I bought it. Oh, right. okay. <laughs> so we brought it up to Hamilton the next day, and it took a while to get a rating on it. And, and what's, what sort of Oh, Peel Emerald, yep. 328, which is, I think they're capable of up to 150 horses if you wish. Uh, it's reasonably roomy for a small fella. But, uh, yeah, so after, I think it was six months before I got hanged 500 metres from home on the Furry Papa field. Yep. And uh, so that carries on. So, of course, then I started getting interested, well, attending sport aircraft events. And like most people who go to meetings, you get dumped onto the committee. Um, <laughs> I think I was straight into president, actually. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so I think I've been doing that for about four years and because I suppose the president's supposed to be the leader I'm a bit more of a doer than a pusher so I've been uh, pretty much the, the manager of the catering for Black Sands right, where yes. we are today yeah, yeah. Uh, this catering is quite a big job Basil did it beforehand and when I got dumped on me due to Basil being involved with um, the uh, guys out at Matter Matter uh, at the Hobbit t town, um, I didn't actually find any records of anything, so I had to sort out for myself uh, exactly how much goods of various foods to provide. Um, I managed to work that out reasonably well, deciding how many pounds or items you'd need for 10 people, so then just multiply that by 10 to get 100. Worked out reasonably well. Um, Basil's back on the job this year. Well, he helped a bit last year, but he's been leading hand this year. He's a good salad maker. Um, so we've looked like we've fed 140-odd people today for lunch, and it's a pretty substantial sort of a meal. 40, 50 of them were for takeaways to the beach landing. Uh, they had a filled roll and a bit of fruit and a bottle of water and a bit of sweet cake or something in their package. Yep. So, um, yeah, the only other thing, I suppose, in the history of it, my dad was spent three months in the Air Force in probably 1943, I think, until he could see that he was going nowhere and the, most of the Air Force wasn't going anywhere, so he went back to the Army. Oh, right, OK. Uh, he had three stripes in the Army, so he carried that on into the Air Force and back again to the Army. Uh, he had a one of... Must have been being trained, exercised, or whatever, for an air gunner, oh, right, because yeah. he had a um, exercise book with Browning 303s stenciled on it, all very neatly. Yes, and uh, that was something that I suppose took my eye for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Not thinking that, yeah, you wouldn't want your dad to be a gunner before you were born. <laughs> yes, yeah. um, I've done three flying tours in Australia. One, so 2011 Lake Eyre had a fair bit of water in it, so I decided I want to go and see Lake Eyre because um, my dad was an Aussie. Yep. Uh, due to reading Australian flying, um, I noted a trip into Lake Eyre or into, into the outback with Stall Aviation Services. So I contacted them and away we went. Um, that was. I was up, riding up front, right in the 206, 
and uh, we went up to White Cliffs overnighted, Birdsville, Broken Hill, and around the lake, of course. The following year, I went over, and we went Stall, Nordura, right up to Kariba um, on the Gulf of Carpentaria. Yep. Crossed to uh, Mataranka, where I had been and visited in 1966. <laughs> uh, Mataranka, I re- refueled at Tyndall, where my pilot got a bit of a. And this this trip was actually as a Technam 2008. Oh, yes. Uh, my pilot got a bit of a rev up from the airport manager because you're supposed to unload your passengers at the terminal before you're refuelled so she promptly said I'm the (laughs) (laughs) co-pilot we went right across to Broome Kununurra of course on the way and Broome back down um, to Alice Springs and then Broken Hill Store in 2013 uh, up front right in a 172. Ooh, we went uh, Cooper Pedy, where I, for the first time in my Australian experience, I saw Australian flies. Holy moly! Cooper <laughs> <laughs> um, Pedy, we went quite west of Alice through a community, as they call it over there, and overnighted at uh, Giles Weather Station, which was set up for the atomic testing so that they could work out the drift in the weather yep. as to where the poison would go. <laughs> right. um, Giles, we went to Newman and out to Coral Bay, which place I'd never heard of, taken no notice of, but it's got a 20 miles, I think, of reef offshore. And while well, we arrived there the night that a bit of a front come in from the Indian Ocean, it was a bit windy, but man, did it create a breaker on that uh, reef. Okay. It was tremendous. Benefits of having a 300mm lens. <laughs> you got a much better view. Yeah. Uh, and then we went down um, down the coast a bit to refuel. Ended up Kalgoorlie. And from there, pretty much down to the coast to um, Nullarbor. Uh, overnighted there. And... Uh, we stopped at a play for lunch at a place where the Trans Australian, I suppose, early airliners had to stop for refuelling. Okay. And the hangar of about 1928 is still there. The accommodation isn't, because they had accommodation for about 28 people there, which would be passengers and crew. Yep. And I think at that point, a lot of that uh, flying was in DH-66s, trimotor. Oh, yes. And uh, from there we went to Port Lincoln, spent two nights there because of weather in Victoria. Uh, We had the fortune to go to a private aircraft collection of flying aircraft. (laughs) Had his own little field of 60-odd acres, cross strips, and there was, uh, I think, six aircraft in the hangar. A Holden Commodore, which was powered by a six-cylinder aero engine with a prop on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, quite a collection of memorabilia. We're, I think we're very fortunate to actually get to see it. Um, and, we, and we got fruitcake and coffee. <laughs> so that was straight from stall across um, the Spencer Gulf. Uh, we stopped at Aldinger, which is 80 miles, I think, south of Adelaide. Had lunch there and then on the stall. Okay. 
Stawel being spelt S-T-A-W-E-L, L, <laughs> not Starwell. <laughs> um, yeah, with the Emerald, I've flown to Ashburton SAA, yeah, the SAA annual event. Been to Hastings last year, and I'm going to have to get my button to gear and do a bit more distance flying. <laughs> So it sounds like you've um, uh, flown a fair distance anyway uh, in the last few years. And uh, But let's get back to today. Did you get outside much today to go and have a look at the aircraft? Oh, I, went, I went around the field once and uh, had a few peekies. At people that were fly- coming in uh, from the distance, from the cookhouse, more or less. Yep. Um, you must be quite pleased with the turnout. Yeah, yeah, the, it's a good turnout. It uh, does create a load of work in the kitchen, though. <laughs> we have uh, yeah, a bit of a limited facility there for space. So it limits how many people you can have actually being productive in there. A bit of equipment, uh, a bit more equipment would be useful. Um, but overall, a successful event? <coughs> yeah, I think it's successful. Yeah, no, nobody's come a whoopsie today, which is good. Um, yeah, the moan strip is not particularly good today. It's very undulating, which caused havoc a couple of years ago to a certain aircraft. <laughs> um, it's unfortunate. Well, it was d- demonstrated this afternoon with a takeoff to the what are we the the west of the the moan strip, or northwest of the moan strip. That there was quite a nice smooth runway there, but um, a bit. We're not in control of everything that we have to do, use. Yeah. Uh, and it all happens again next year, I guess. Yeah, hopefully, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I yeah. certainly will look forward to it. Yeah, well, yeah. We'll, we'll look forward to seeing you there. You might get to record a few more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much, Bruce. Fine, good. I'm talking here with Gary Williams. Hi, Gary. Good morning, Dave. How are you this morning? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm fine. How have you uh, enjoyed the event? Oh, it's been a fantastic ev- event. Yeah, the weather's been on our side. Lots of planes, lots of people. It's been good. Right. And how did you get into uh, aviation to start with? Uh, I was probably talked into it by a friend many, many years ago. Um, and it's stuck for 40 years. Wow, 40 years, that's a, that's a long time. Yeah, probably 45, actually. Wow. <laughs> and uh, you flew into the, uh, to the event? No, I didn't. No, my plane's still sitting in the hangar. needs a bit of work, so I drove in. Uh, what sort of aircraft have you got? A Jodel D11 and a 90% finished RV-8. Oh, nice, nice. The old uh, Jodel's quite a popular sport aircraft, isn't it? A home-built aircraft. It, it is, and it was... It still is, but it's not as um, popular as it used to be, unfortunately, but they're a damn good aircraft. Indeed, and the uh, the RVs, they're just an amazing uh, new sort of concept on the scene that have taken over from the Jodel era, haven't they? Yeah, they have taken over from the Jodel. Jodel used to be the most popular in numbers, now the, the RVs of various sizes have well and truly taken over. And um, so tell me about... Uh, uh, SAA and and you know 
the, the Black Sands event. What does it mean to you? Oh, it's a great annual event. It's something to look forward to each year. And, um, yeah, as long as the weather's on our side, it's normally a, a good occasion. And we've certainly had it on our side this weekend. We have, indeed. Uh, we have had a couple of years where it hasn't been, but you know, everyone still seems to come, keep coming back. Uh, yeah, may it keep on happening like that. Right, right. So where did you um, first learn to fly? Uh, I first learned in Tikawiri about 1976. Right, through the sort of aero club scene? Through the aero club scene. Uh, Waitomo Aero Club owned its own plane at the time, but they used Waikato Aero Club instructors and etc. So students used to fly the plane to Hamilton, pick up the instructor and fly back again or vice versa. And same at the other end of the day. Um, and so now are you sort of more... Um focused on just flying your own aircraft and, and, and doing your own thing or are you still involved with aero clubs? I'm still involved with the Waitomo Aero Club uh, to a degree but no I just fly my own aeroplane, do my own thing and I'm also a member of AOPA which is a national body um, and yeah I've got friends in that that I fly with and if I don't take my plane I go go for a ride with someone else and that that takes you all over the country it seems to me that black sands that's what it's all about is the friendships and the the social side of things it's just a wonderful gathering for that doesn't it it is it is um yeah and it's, it seems to get new people new planes every year although the numbers our record numbers in the past have been 107 aircraft i think for the weekend well this weekend being as good as it has been, the numbers are still roughly the same. But And we couldn't fit any more aeroplanes out there anyway. Well, that's true, <laughs> yeah, there wasn't much room. <laughs> no. Well, um, thank you very much. That's quite all right. I'm talking with John Lizington. Hi John. G'day Dave, how are you? Good thanks. How have you enjoyed this weekend? Very much so. Uh, brilliant. Good organisation, even though we help, I helped to do it myself a wee bit. <laughs> well that helps, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, tell me about your background with uh, aviation. I started flying in 1969 uh, at the Waitomo Aero Club and Victor's. The old Victors, they don't make them anymore now. And um, I got a licence after two years and flew for a wee while and then I, I got a share in a 172 in about 1975. Right. And we had that for about 35 years and then we sold that to the local aero club. Because okay. there were seven of us bought it and it cost us $3,000 each. Complete uh, full instruments and everything and um, we sold it again because there was only about three of us left and uh, and then we because we only had our own little, we had our own little little our own aircraft at that stage so we didn't really need it anymore hey I forgot about that I was in that too yeah you were 
<laughs> There's another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's where we're at at this stage anyway. But I'm just a micro pilot now. Yep. But I have an RPL as well, so. Okay. And what are you flying now? I'm flying a Zenair 601. Yep. What are they like? Uh, brilliant little aircraft, yeah. Comfortable, very comfortable on a long trip. You're almost lying down on it. Right. Uh, they are. They're good. Yep. Um, they're good on strips. They, they've got a... A, a Rotec 912 in it, which is a really good engine, and I've had that for about six years. Okay, mm. okay. done about 400 hours. Uh, how long have you been involved with uh, SAA? Um, since about 2001. Okay, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you um, you were involved in organising this event, so you obviously have something to do with the committee. Uh, not not as such, but anybody that that goes to an SAA meeting is basically on the committee anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> Get yeah. written. <laughs> yeah. I'm also, I'm also involved in the AOPA, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Right, right. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, that's a, it's a, it's a, a group of pilots called the AOPA. Uh, used to be called the Kitty Hawk once years ago and they changed the name. It's, it's more GA aircraft in AOPA. Yeah. I... I Belong to I, I I joined it when I was involved in the 172 years ago, right? right. And uh, but I've been just involved ever since. Haven't haven't left. So uh, we get uh, we get down the South Island at least once a year for for flyings and stuff like that. Yeah. I've got one in March down there this year, uh, next year actually. Mm, the AOPA down at Cromwell. Okay. Yep. Mm. And so with the um, the fly-ins like Black Sands and your AOPA ones. Is it the flying that attracts you the most to it, or is it the uh, the socialising with the people when you get there? A bit of both, actually. Yeah, the people, great great bunch of guys. Both organisations are a great bunch of guys, uh, and the flying's good because you go to very, particularly the AOPA, because you go into backcountry stations and all that sort of thing in the South Island. Yeah. And uh, whereas the SAA doesn't quite do that the same, but it's still good. Yeah. Mm. All right, very good. And uh, you've got to fly home? I'll fly home later. I'll probably go down the coast, to go down to the Aero Club this afternoon sometime. Um, we have a, usually have quite a group of aeroplanes come into uh, Waitomo, which is Tikawiti. Yep. Um, sometimes we can have up to nine or ten aeroplanes there for a cup of coffee on a Sunday afternoon. This is quite good. Mm. Right, right. All mm. oh, right. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Not a problem. I'm talking with Gavin McGill, who's the SAA NZ Administrator. Hi Gavin. Hi David, how you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, yeah, how have you enjoyed Black Sand so far? It has been a brilliant weekend, absolutely amazing. Uh, um, this is my third Black Sands that I've been to. The first one was just a day visit on a Sunday. Last year we st I stayed uh, overnight with my wife. Uh, and this year is the and we didn't we didn't get to land on the beach. This year is my first one here, and we got to land on the beach. It's just amazing, you know, just absolutely wrecked with, with the whole weekend. Yeah, fantastic. It's been a wonderful weekend for me as well, and pretty much everyone here is really wrapped. Uh, and the turnout is just phenomenal. You know, the weather yesterday, is, as you saw, was just brilliant. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, the guys are talking. The Black, uh, the Waikato chapter guys are talking, um, 120, 130 plus airplanes, and uh, I mean it's. 
easy to see. There were 80 down the far side, the, the southern side of the runway yesterday afternoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, it just, just a huge number of aeroplanes here, just, and, and, and a lot of people, and, and just really nice time. And uh, Raglan's really turned it on for us in the Waikato chapter. Waikato Thames Valley chapter have just done themselves really proud for it. <laughs> Hopefully they haven't created a rot for their own backs when the <laughs> if, the, if it's this, going to be the same next year and growing, because it's just getting better. It seems to be going from strength to strength. It really does. So it's fantastic. So where have you come from to, to uh, visit here? Uh, so, so I'm based out of Auckland, uh, out of Ardmore. Uh, I've got uh, a hangar at Ardmore. And my wife and I live in Papakura. Um, we do the SAA NZ administration uh, as a shared job between the two of us. Um, and I've got a, a little Zenith uh, 601 uh, in the hangar there at Ardmore and uh, a, um, a share in a Sonics, which is also in the same hangar as well. Okay, and did you fly in here um, in anything, or did you drive yeah, down? No, no, I, I, f I flew in in my uh, 601, and uh, um, and, uh, yeah, and uh, it was it's nice to come here because it's you know, it's a great little strip, and the 601 gets in quite comfortably, so it's a yeah, very nice. It's a quite short flight for me. It's not not not. It's only about 40 minutes out of Auckland, so it's great. Really quite easy to come in. And how did you first get into aviation? Oh, yeah, now there's a long story. No, not really. It's I've been interested in it since I was knee high to a grasshopper basically and uh, always had an interest in it since I was a kid. Um, I can remember vividly going to the uh, SAA uh, fly-in, or AACA fly-in, beg your pardon, as it was then, um, in 1979 at uh, Max Clears at Tokofi. Wow. I was 15 years old and uh, just absolutely, you know, um, bitten by the bug. It's, uh, you know, it's a... Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an affliction we're, we're dealt with, but uh, it's one we all bear uh, willingly, I think. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, no, I, I've, that's, I've always been into uh, aviation and flying and, and anything you know to do with aerospace and things like that. So it's my it's my passion. And um, and I started. I'm, I'm building a, a KR2S, which is a rather old design, scratch building one. It's, not, it's a hobby, and I sort of picked that up. A, Long story short, I, I learned to fly. Got when I was in, the, I joined the Air Force out of school. Yeah. Um, got my pilot's license in, in the mid '80s. Got married, had kids, let the fly, flying go for a while. Usual story, and then picked it up again about, um, oh, about seven years ago. Started to build the KR2S. I thought I'd get back into it. Uh, then bought into share in Sonics. Bought in the the, the hangar and the, the Zenith, and things have just moved along like that. So, and and the passion keeps growing, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's an affliction. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm badly bitten. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Um, just um, tell me a little bit about SAA for anyone out there who doesn't really know. Okay, well, SAA NZ, uh, our organisation is uh, there to support, uh, principally to support um, uh, sport aircraft builders and sport aircraft owners. Um, uh, we we have a huge mix of uh, and sport aircraft in the broader sense, as in like the inclusive of microlights, inclusive of um, we have one um, member who is uh, rebuilding um, Harvard Warbird. Uh, you know, um, we're not Warbirds, we're not microlight organisations. We don't uh, do the licensing and issues of microlights, but we support. Our job is to support the builders and be representative of of, uh, of the members um, to within New Zealand to the uh, to CAA we re meet with the Civil Aviation or the SAA Council meets with Civil Aviation uh, once a year we have a face-to-face -face meeting with them and we cover issues that are um, 
appropriate to or, or, or important to our members and builders and, 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 and we, that's the, what we lobby CAA around. We're also part of the, the broader recreational uh, aviation group uh, under the New Zealand Federation, Aviation Federation banner. Yep. And uh, we have uh, two representatives on that um, uh, uh, committee and, and they are regularly uh, working with um, CAA as well. And, uh, and um, so we've got a, a, a good cross-section of people in the, on, on the SAA council who, who are there and can help us and help builders. We provide, um, the, obviously we've got our, our quarterly magazine, Sport Flying, that we, we, we send out. We do, a, we do a membership directory, we do uh, maintenance programs for, for members that need maintenance programs. We have a, 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 a CAA um, recognised maintenance program which we which I put together as administrator if members need them and um, for those that uh, require um, uh, Lamy uh, um, uh, licensed aircraft mechanical engineers to do the work on the uh, on the aircraft I can provide them with the maintenance programs and things like that as well. Um, Website, usual, all the normal stuff, and, and, and financials. We and we also create. It gives it. We are the, uh, if you like, the parent um, organisation for all the all the chapters around uh, around New Zealand. The, the chap, we're all individual, separate organisations, but uh, we um, and uh, a large chunk of the members of the individual chapters around the country are also members of the. the, the uh, national organization as well um, but we have uh, 525 members within the national organization at the moment it's quite a big number of people um, and plus all our subscribers to the magazine which is about another 140 odd members uh, 40 odd subscribers so it's not we're not an insignificant portion of the New Zealand aviation scene you know, we, we have a, a fairly large um, number of, of people um, uh, that uh, uh, are associated or are part of our organisation. <coughs> I mean, um, they're also part of other organisations, I imagine, as well. You know, there's a large number of our members are also members of AOPA as well. Yeah. And uh, and we work quite. We have a, a good working relationship with AOPA as well. So and, and the other and, and the microlight organisations in New Zealand. So we we don't working through Aviation Federation is that we we get to to work with them quite. A lot of cross pollination. Though. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, builders that are build their airplanes, finish their airplanes. Uh, if if they remain in SAA, it's great. But some, some of them will actually move on to and become part of AOPA. Is once they if they don't want to do any more building, and and, and, and that's not un, unheard of. But uh, you know, we encourage them to remain part of SAA. But uh, it's you know, it's not uh, it's not compulsory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, it, it's a great organisation. I, I just. Uh, um, the number of people that are the friendliness of everybody here and how everybody is helpful it's just I, I, you would have seen it when you uh, you know and yeah. anywhere you go to flying like this or to to uh, um, any of the meetings and people the, everybody there is just willing to share their information their knowledge and, and to help out you know. the, the, the key things that I've seen is the friendliness, as you say, yeah. there's the experience as, as pilots. Oh, massive, massive amount of experience. experience. Pilots and engineering. And yeah, engineers. That's the other thing I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. The engineering side. Yeah. Is there are there are some significant skills, and what I, th I, I, I notice because I'm I come out of I come into aviation. Uh, for, uh, I'm not a professional 
aviator at all. I'm purely private pilot, purely. Um, and the guys that are flying, you know, they come from all over. You, you get super um, experienced uh, um, display pilots. You get uh, airline pilots. You get uh, ag pilots. You get home builders with just a number of hours. And, and everybody... And lamies and engineers with massive amounts of experience working for Air New Zealand or just um, the local uh, engineering works on wherever they all come together in the same organisation, yeah. share their knowledge, and, and it's just fantastic. I just I couldn't. Uh, it's a great, a great uh, uh, organisation to be part of. And for anyone out there who uh, wants to find out more, tell us about the website and the Facebook page. So okay, yeah, well, we're on, we're, obviously we have a we our own website, which is www.sa.org.nz, O-R-G.nz, and our Facebook page, we're on there. You'll see us under uh, Sport Aircraft Association New Zealand. Yep. Um, uh, if you look us up on, on, on Facebook, we're on there, and uh, I uh, usually putting up a, an entry, try and get something up there a couple of times a week. I'm not, I'm not as efficient at it as I should be, <laughs> but uh, I should, I'm hopefully get a few photos out of this weekend. I'll be able to get up there, and um, and the website's uh, we, it's it's a work in progress, it needs a bit bit of extra effort as well. So, but uh, it's definitely there. If you go onto that website, there's a um, uh, a link. Uh, one of the menu options is uh, how to join membership, and you can you can download a, a membership form and just email that through. Scan and email, scan and, and email that through to me. At uh, I'm uh, my email address is administrator at saa. Sorry, admin at saa.org.nz, and uh, that all comes through to me, and uh, and we uh, will we will more than happily um, process the new members. More than happy to. Yeah, so. Very cool. Well, thank you very much, Gavin. Hey, you're more than welcome. More than welcome. It's uh, been a great weekend. It's been absolutely awesome to be here. And, uh, and thanks for the opportunity. It's no worries. Thank Cheers. you. Okay, I'm talking with Don Wilkinson and his son, David Wilkinson. Hi. Can't tell which is which, but still. <laughs> how are you? Yeah, good, good. First of all, how's, how's the weekend gone for you guys? Oh, Dave, this has been one of the best. I mean, they're always good down here, but with the weather the way it's been, the beach landings yesterday, more people than usual, been fantastic. Been a great weekend, yeah. yeah I think everybody will say that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great flying. It's a bit like the Matter Matter Sport Avex was in the early days, where you can jump in an aeroplane, taxi up, and go. Um, Sport Avex at Tauranga at the stage where to go for a quick flight like that it was a bit of a bit of a uh, mission to get your aeroplane out through the through the public, right. but no grass fields flying like this you can't beat it, especially with the weather. And um, yeah, fantastic weekend. But uh, Raglan's really turned it on for us, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. fantastic weekend. Yeah, we were watching that weather map during the weekend. It gradually the big high was starting to head this way, and this is going to be good. So yeah, obviously we thank Bruce Cook for organising, but we'd like to take responsibility for organising the weather. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So um, tell me, how did you guys get into aviation? I'm sure that you must have been the originator in the family. Well, it goes back a long time. I can remember seeing Corsairs flying around Wellington when I was a kid, yep. and I loved that bent wing look, you know. Yep. And uh, I went to the, my first time on a plane was 1953, I flew down, courtesy of my parents' generosity, to Christchurch for the end of the London, the Christchurch Air Race. Oh wow. In 1953, saw those cambers come in at some ungodly hour in the morning. 
and it was a filthy morning, and um, but it was the start of aviation for me. And uh, then um, <coughs> built model airplanes, and I built my first home built at the age of 11, but it didn't look like it was ever going to fly. But it was there's actually a photograph in one of the magazines of the flame of it with me sitting in it, and it went from there, and I started the uh, fly in 1964. I dropped it because of women and other distractions and so on and then <clears throat> after I got married and had kids we uh, I got back into flying. Norm Bartlett turned up with a starlet at, no he, no sorry, Phil Craigie tu turned up with, uh, Cliff Craigie turned up with his little Taylor monoplane at Ardmore and I said I want to build an airplane and Norm who was building a starlet said look Don it's a hell of a um, long-term project but I'll come and show you mine I'm building a Corby Starlet and that was it. Right. Yeah. So you started that when? 1982. Right. I actually bought it half built from a guy up at Tomata here just out of Raglan. It was half, the wood was all framed up more or less and um, <clears throat> and I finished putting it together, did all the mechanical work in it and got it going a year and a half later. Okay. David was very involved at the age of five and six and that was 1980. To 82, and I flew it in October, I think it was in 82. Done about 2,000 something, out, 2,200 hours since, and most half of them have been David putting into it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it was a time when he used to fly on my fuel, and now I fly on his. He's very generous. So you've sort of grown up with aviation then? Yeah, I suppose there was always an aeroplane in the shed growing up as a kid. Um, one of the first memories, well, I sat in the in toy for many hours while dad was working on it but one of the funniest things I remember is we had it all tied down in the shed had the engine and give it an engine run and my mates and I were about uh, five five or six years old dad started up and there was a sheet of newspaper on the floor below the prop the sheet of newspaper came up through the prop and filled the shed with confetti and we thought it was the funniest thing that ever <laughs> happened and um, I don't think it was looking back now it probably wasn't that good for the prop but we kept saying to dad can we do it again can we do it again but it was um, yeah that was one of the early memories and um yeah, hanging around. Another memory was we had that the aeroplane was all finished, all ready to go, signed off, and had it running outside Ross Jelts' hangar at, at Ardmore. Dad throttled back, right, it's ready to go, throttled back, and the and the propeller hub let go, and the prop took off across what's now the White Matter apron. End for end, walking, walking on the tips, and um, yeah, that was another. And I remember walking over and picking up the prop, and once again at that age, I thought that was quite hilarious, but um. Look back now, it must have been pretty heartbreaking for Dad because um, it meant a yeah, bulk strip the engine and, and another probably three or four months' work. But yeah, yeah it's um, Corby Starlet's, yeah, I couldn't get in it soon enough once I actually flew it. Before I had my licence, I was signed out solo on it as a student pilot. Right. Um, and yeah, I used to go to the training area and, and practice compass turns and steep turns in the Corby Starlet, so there weren't many students around <laughs> doing that in the little single-seater. So yeah. I flew it the, the day before I turned 21, and that was back in 1996, I think it was, yeah. So, but yeah, it was um, great fun, and now, yeah, with the two of them, we've had a few flights out of Ragland early morning, we had one yesterday in formation, and one a couple of years ago, we got up on top of Waterhead, there was a layer of cloud, and we are playing up around there, and there's, there's the sort of flights that you'll look back at, and you'll, there. every now and again, you go for a flight that you you uh, that's what you actually will fly. That's what yeah, you call an airplane. You, you, will, you will not forget. There's certain flights you just don't forget. <coughs> right. 
Yeah, but no, the cor- we just you know, got the, the yellow yeah, we'll love affair, these things. part of the family, these Corby starlets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely, and and speaking of family, you've got the big brother aircraft right next yeah. to it as well. Yeah, we'll which call is it Mother Duck. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the two hens. Yeah. Well, that's an RV... RV8. It RV8. was a quick little RV8. <coughs> um, somewhere around 200 horsepower, and it's great. It's, it's a, oh, I love it. love it. The horsepower, the performance, fantastic, but... Um, Going back to the Corbys, the the, the the value for money flying Corby starlets, you can't beat it. Mm. The, the great thing with RV8, it's got another seat, and my, you see my, my children are now willing to hop in it with me and do some aerobatics, which is fantastic, and yeah. um, they're loving it actually. And little Emma, she's three, she went for her first flight on Friday, two I days ago. That. I saw that, fantastic. And, um, I turned it upside down with her in it because I just want the kids to know that that's what Dad's aeroplane does. Should I want to go back? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, whether there's a next generation coming through, I don't know, but we'll see what happens. I mean, it almost seems inevitable, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think Pippa will be the one. She she seems to be the one that likes to hang upside down. So, but no, it's definitely part of. It, it's we've had a lot of fun together. Dad and I have with the, with the aeroplanes. It's sort of something that I really treasure. It's um, I think it's me, father, sons that have done what we've done with a couple of Corby starlets. You know, yeah, yeah. good fun. So, how many starlets are there in New Zealand? I think there's six, six, maybe seven wooden oh, ones. Okay. Um, there's a Corby Kestrel, which is basically the the, the aluminium version. Right. Um, and there's there's probably four or five within. If, if, if the, Three if the bill is, we won't mention any names, but if the bill is Peter Aiken and Doug Robson and, and uh, various together. people got their act together, they could probably be finished within six months. Gordon Lindsay, there's right. another one. Yep. Um, so there's and Gary Montague is building another wooden one underneath, and so there's, there's a whole heap. I think that. The kit set vans have probably, they've made it very easy to build a home built if it is easy, or as easy as it can be. So the, these plans built aircraft are, um, take a lot more work, which, are, which I'm going through at the moment with the, one, with the DR107, but um, you've really got to admire the guys, and, or even you go a step further, you admire someone like Bruce Cook that designed and built and completed and flies his own aeroplane and as many times I was struggling with a with a quick build kit which is just really an assembly and I was thinking how did Bruce do what he did and you know he's um because Bruce built the aeroplane designed the aeroplane built the aeroplane and developed the motor all in one hit. Yeah. That was a pretty big challenge. Absolutely yeah. 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 You've got to admire him for what Bruce has done, you know. The enthusiasm and the dedication huge. Yeah. Yeah I followed that uh project because you know, he lives yeah. in the same town we're good mates and yes he's a good smart fellow absolutely yeah um now you're also involved with uh we just got to find a wife for him now <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyone out there listening spoil <laughs> but you're also involved with the rv8 team now aren't you yeah we've um yeah we've done three or four displays there's four or five of us um kevin polson's leading that in his rv6 um the saa sport aircraft association New Zealand been invited to a few air shows and we've sort of tucked in under um, the New Zealand Warbirds and Dave Brown's been very good who's a CFI there Um, and Dean Beverly and the other Warbirds instructors and we've done quite a bit of formation work Um, and we've got a little air show routine where we we do a four or five ship formation Um, two or three will land I'll carry on to a solo's aerobatics and then Dez will will overlap with his so it's not um, the aerobatics is continuous and overlapping. I'm sort of a bit reserved at this stage about formation aerobatics. So, right. um, but yeah, it, it's and Tauranga Air Show. I've been invited into that. We we're in the Warbirds over Wai uh, Rapper or 
wings over wire wrapper, I should say. Um, and Warbirds over Wanaka next in Easter 2016. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's 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 good flying. It, 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 formation flying it's pretty tough when you start, but you get better and better at it the more you do. So the more relaxed. Um, but yeah, we're having we're having fun with that too. So yeah, and it also um, shows the public that these little general general aviation planes have got the right stuff as well, just like the Warbirds, really. Yeah, well we can. Um, fly around fairly economically compared to a Harvard you know yeah. um, th the flying we've done this weekend I'd hate to be doing it in Harvard because <laughs> yeah. the, the fuel will be going through the roof yeah. so um, and it's more trying to highlight to the public that you can build these things in your garage you can have a lot of fun with them the RV will get airborne out of North Shore and you be in Ashburn in three three and a half hours non-stop so they cover the country yep. um, in fact we we went to Marston for the air show down there one hour 35 from North Shore to Marston that's moving along. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but the, 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 what, what we'd like to sort of try to get across is that you can build these things in the garage. It's the same as people that rebuild cars and motorbikes, and we just do it with aeroplanes. Um, yeah. And the and other thing is, <coughs> you meet a lot of mates. You know, and it, it is about the people. Our chapter in Auckland, the active chapter, we meet last Thursday of the month, and it's always good to see the guys, new guys coming in, the old guys still there, you know. Yeah. See John Farmer and Peter B are there, 80 something years old each. They still chug around like the last of summer wine in their little two-seat two airplane. That's <laughs> wonderful. There's also a huge, these, the, the, the more senior members I should call them now, there's, there's a huge amount of technical experience with design and building and um, which is just invaluable. Yeah. Um, you go to these club meetings, some of them aren't flying anymore, um, but from a technical point of view, they know inside out what to do with aircraft construction right. and maintenance. So, and the Sport Aircraft Association has been fantastic. Also, with the maintenance approvals you can do now with experimental aircraft. Um, so, yeah, it's a big. It's been a big part of our life, and long may it continue. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, we have had continually improving relationship with civil aviation we're getting there yeah. you know they are starting to understand that we're not a bunch of idiots who want to build stupid uh, dangerous toys there is a sound element of responsibility in our organization <clears throat> and civil aviation with a couple of exceptions are starting to understand that we know what we're doing too right. Right. And, that, and that's coming through yeah. yeah excellent can you give me a few stats on the um, on the Corby Starlet um, what sort of top speed and it's, like um, it's it, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> subsonic. It's um, a utility category which is like semi aerobatic That's plus four Gs and minus one point three, I think. Right. Um, so it's capable of being carefully flying. It's capable of doing quite a neat, tidy aerobatic routine. In fact, that thing's got its name on the intermediate and the unlimited uh, category in the. Unknown category, not unlimited, unknown category <coughs> in the aerobatic club's trophies. Um, it's uh, maximum speed is 138 knots. Uh, mine has flown, I have to say by mistake, it flew to 155. That was aerobatics getting out of control and it was a nasty situation, but that was it was actually tested to that originally. Um, the cruise is 110 to 120 knots, yep. And it's good. Uh, 110 to 120, and it's got enough fuel to go from. Uh, so well, it's got 200 nautical miles. Yeah, it does 200 nautical miles safely, so I can get to Wanganui non-stop in, right. in about two hours and ten minutes.
Fantastic. Here's the other one come back. We had to watch him land. Yeah. Uh, either way. <laughs> yeah, good. The idle needs adjusting, I think. Yeah. She's idling just a tad fast. Um, yeah, so <coughs> you can't take people with litre, you. 13 litres an hour fuel Yeah, 13 litres an hour. Can't beat that. And um, so while you, can only, while you can't carry two people, one person can have twice as much fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> it does look like a real fun, fun little aircraft. It's, it's a tiny aircraft in, in size. I mean, that would fit in most car garages, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes, I've had a double garage under my house. <coughs> it's... Um, in fact, several times I've taken it back to the airfield Ardmore without dismantling it. Re refurbished it at home, put it on a trailer sideways, gone through early in the morning and the cops haven't got up. And, <laughs> and you can take it on the road. We, we tend not to. Funny that. story about that. The first time we ever took it to Ardmore, I was sitting in it holding the controls, uh, still on a trailer behind the old Holden Kingswood. We're going down the back of Miller Road towards Ardmore, 5 o'clock in the morning, even earlier. And coming the other way, we had no, no over width permit in those days, and we just thought, right, we'll do it. Coming the other way, there was a there was a piece of machinery taking up the whole width of the road, traffic cops everywhere, pilot vehicles, and we um, we oh, met yeah. him right on a roundabout. And Dad <laughs> leans out the window and says, busy morning officer, and we just keep going. <laughs> but if we'd met anywhere else, it was just an absolute fluke we met at the roundabout, and, yeah. and they had their hands full, and yeah, busy morning officer, and we just smiled and kept going. <laughs> yeah. that, that was the first time it ever went down to Ardmore, actually, early 80s. <laughs> right. mm. Yeah, first one in nineteen eighty two. And it's flown uh, every week almost since, with a few exceptions. We've had a couple of mishaps with it. Uh, David flipped on his back one time. We had a, uh, a failure on the propeller hub one time where the spinner came off and broke the propeller as well, and David was in at the time. Um, my fault it was, and that was very nearly a fatality. But he got it back on the ground and tore the undercarriage off of it, got it back on the ground and got out. Um, I dumped it in a big rabbit hole at uh, Kinlock one day and they had to truck it home and fix the broken engine because the propeller went on the ground. A few things like that, but it's it's like Paddy's axe. It's it's had a few heads and handles, but it's still a damn good axe. <laughs> I mean, it looks immaculate. Um, your whole fleet does. Uh, it's yeah. just wonderful. Tango, I mean, I'd just also like to say, Tango and over Tango, which is the second corp, we've got Alfred Herzl built that one. That flew in, um, I think, 2002. And it's, Alfred's workmanship was absolutely top-notch. We saw the thing being built, and um, obviously credit to Alfred for, for building the aeroplane to the standard. That's done about 500 hours now, still on the original engine. And um, it's probably a smaller engine than, than Tango Oscar Yankee, but it's, uh, it's a little bit lighter, I think. And um, they, they tend to get heavier as they grow, like we do, yep. as they get older. Yep. But no, um, yeah, Alfred did a fantastic job of, of building that aircraft yeah. over 10 years in his garage also. We happen to have them now because it came up for sale, it was going to be sold to Arizona. And David said, we can't let this happen, so he gave Alfred a cheque that night for um, whatever he wanted for it. <clears throat> so we owned it. So now we've shared it. They, DCM's got, Dave Cameron-Wallison's got part of it. and and. Uh, David owns the rest. And the, the biggest thing in buying it was really we wanted to keep it in the country. We're having trouble getting people to finish them and get them flying. We thought we don't want to let one go offshore. Yeah. So, um, yeah, at, at some stage we're going to look at 
selling it or, or syndicating, or syndicating it, it, but we'd like to keep them together. Hopefully at North Shore we find the right person. There's a few young people coming through that are enthusiastic and it'd be great to get a, another young pilot through into a tail wheel and, um, and, and, and keep them together and, and carry on with it. So that, that, that is the long-term goal. We've got a hangar at North Shore. We can keep all the aircraft together and... and um, yeah, hand them down to the grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you ever get the two uh, starlets up together and race them? Oh yeah, we well, went Mine, out. Mine's faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is yours? <laughs> we um, we had a lovely flight the day before yesterday on the uh, what was it Saturday morning? We took off still calm, clear, and we went out around the beach at 500 feet down the coast here, and just in formation side by side. David hanging off my wingtip. About from here that airplane their way yeah. and it was so smooth we just flew like one airplane and we went right around the back there and climbed right over the top of those hills he came over the top of there and came back here stepped out of it and he shook his hand he put his hand out and said that's what we built the airplane for fantastic yeah. well that's a, that's a great way to end this uh, yeah. interview thank you very much guys good day yep. really thank you appreciate it cheers During the event, there was a bit of a presentation, wasn't there, Bruce? Yeah, it's um, what we wanted to do is that after so many successful years of Black Sands, we wanted to actually um, put a bit of the money that we had raised back into the community. I mean, um, we have only limited things we can spend the money on. We really wanted to put it back into the community that had been supporting us at Black Sands uh, for so many years. And so we decided that we'd be supporting um, a couple of the local community organisations who have been particularly useful um, good for peace of mind for aviators moving in and out of the airfield as well and that's the uh, local St John Ambulance and the local fire service so we've contributed $500 to each of their special projects at the moment which is a set of portable lights for the fire service and a resuscitator unit for the ambulance righto we'll make a start on this for the Waikato uh, Thames Valley chapter of Sport Aircraft Association as you guys know, we're here once a year. Uh, we've had a couple of call-outs. Fortunately, there was no injury to the last one. Uh, but you're not far away. So you guys are, uh, I suppose you're volunteers. Yep. Yep. So you put a fair chunk of your spare time into training and running around after people who do silly things. So we're uh, making a bit of a contribution to you. So one for the fire service of uh, $500. Who's the this man? Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll just say a few words if you yep. like. Yeah. Hey, um, look, just on behalf of the local brigade, thanks to your group for this generous donation. Um, it's always good to have you here each year, and just remember we're always here for you. Thankfully, you don't need us. Um, but yeah, we're always here. And what we're going to do, we've just recently brought one of these lights. I'll just get the guys to set it up, show you how it works. They're $1,000 each. Um, so what we're looking to do is we're going to be using this donation to buy another one of these. Um, it's a night light so we can use it at night, it's fully portable, we can carry it around, we can put it up at accident scenes, we can do all sorts of things with it. So, uh, cool. yeah. <laughs> Somebody get a picture of that? Gotcha. <laughs> um, very, very good and uh, that's what we're going to be putting this generous donation towards is getting another one of these. So, as you I said, they're a thousand dollars each, yep. Yeah. Um, the fire Cheaper service at 10. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's very bright. Quite bright. Yeah. 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 yeah.
you can adjust the, the damage too by um, yeah. just pressing them there. Yeah. Yeah. Take four settings, so. Whatever's suitable. Uh, we haven't been able to flatten it yet while we've been using it, so for, for a long time. Is it rechargeable? Yeah. 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 Just plug it into the power or plug it into a cigarette lighter. So if we have a good year next year, you might pay, out, pay it off. Can I get it for the next party I have? <laughs> you want it flashing? Yeah. 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 This weekend has been very successful for us. Uh, what have we got? 100 115. 115 aircraft have been in and out and probably back again, some of them. Uh, we fed about 100 people over there yesterday and 50 had takeaway lunches to go to the beach. Some didn't uh, wait to get to the beach, I know. Um, all toilets. Damn good. Uh, and seeing we haven't had the call St John, it's been a very good day too. Cool. <laughs> so, Thank you very much uh, for that. Cool. No doubt you'll find a good home for it. Uh, I just wanted to say a few words. Thank you very much, um, you guys. I mean, uh, it's, um, our, our hearts always skip a beat when we hear there's a plane crash or something like that, eh? Like we did on Boxing Day. But luckily, thankfully, there was a good outcome there. And, um, and we've never had a, any fatals out here, to my knowledge. So. That's a good thing. And um, so, as, as um, Kevin was saying, we're, we're here for you too, if needed, type of thing. And um, yeah, so just thank you very much for this. And this is what it's uh, going to go towards um, a, uh, a new recess kit. So, um, that's very uh, very helpful because the old one is almost falling apart. So, thank you very much. Well, that's Black Sands uh, over for another year, and uh, what are your, what's your reaction, Bruce? Well, relief to a certain degree, first of all, for actually getting through the weekend. It's been a busy weekend for us, but uh, it's, it's just really very positive. The whole positive vibe of the whole weekend has been, been there. Uh, we had a good turnout, a record number of aeroplanes there, over 100 on the Saturday, total of about 115, 120, sort of others sort of dribbled in at the end. Um, and still sort of wanted to take part and register and things so they're counted in the total so um, it's been really good 37 went to the beach um, I think it was 174 at lunch um, the other day it's it's just um, yeah just really overwhelming actually the numbers of people that came out just um, the popularity of it and the fact that we had such good weather it just it all sort of aligned this year and we had, had probably the best one ever uh, so yeah, really um, impressed with it. As a lot of hard work with everyone involved in it, um, I'm gonna go home and recover now. But um, yeah, it's just been an awesome weekend. Well, I just want to say, you know, it, it's been an awesome event, uh, just like everyone else is telling you. Uh, and congratulations to all the uh, organising team and those who work so hard behind the scenes and in the kitchen and you know on the flight line and all the uh, all the hours and days and months of organization that must have gone into the event um, all paid off for you guys um, I also want to say personally thank you to David Wilkinson uh, for the ride in the RV8 and uh, to Neil McHugh for the ride in his beautiful little chipmunk and um, and to you Bruce for all your um, 
your uh, kindness over the weekend and, and to all the team, um, Bruce McDonald and um, all the guys who, who helped run it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a team effort and um, all the chapter guys sort of pitch in and, and help, even down to sort of setting up the gazebos and stuff like that. It's it's all those sort of little things that sort of make it the awesome weekend and it's the people that you meet that make it, that's the important thing. It's not just an aeroplane event, it's a people event. People go there, they tell tall stories and, and, and you get to know one another and make good friends and that, that's what the weekend's about and that's the essence of Black Sands. And um, so that's the plan of attack is to, to carry on with the way we've been going and um, have another excellent event next year. Um, the date we're just going to fine tune on that. But uh, looking forward to an excellent, excellent one there. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think the, the locals really liked it. So we gave uh, the donations to the fire service and the ambulance and uh, that was great putting something back into the community just sort of rounds off the whole weekend really nicely yeah absolutely it's a it's a great event um national nationally it's a great event um but it's a great little community spirited event as well and you know you can't say anything more than that it's it was fun just fun just brilliant well done excellent thanks for coming along dave and thanks for recording it for uh, for the, for people to understand what black sands is all about yeah no problem and we'll see you next year. Absolutely. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.